everybody and welcome to episode 41 of Life and Life Only. This is a very short intro to say that this is a double appearance I made on Luke's English podcast in April and May this year with a Covid holiday in between which I have talked about and which we do refer to here and that's why I start to flag towards the end of this conversation. Luke and I have done lots of podcasts together and Luke's actually been on all three of my podcasts. That's Life and Life Only, Glass Onion on John Lennon and Film Gold. I'll put some links in the show notes to Luke's website and some of our previous collaborations. We have a very good rapport and a a nice rhythm when we do podcasts and hopefully we're actually going to meet in the flesh at some point in the future and I'm sure we'll do more podcasts together as well. Luke had the idea of going through some topics that I'd covered on Life and Life Only and profiling the podcast to some extent for his audience. There were a lot of topics so we couldn't deep dive on each one but the idea was that I'd already covered some of them on the podcast so I attempted to summarize my thoughts on these topics and Luke added his own insights. One thing I haven't talked about too much before is English teaching and since Luke and I are both English teachers it seemed right for us to share some ideas on the psychology of the job to some extent and some anecdotes from our quite long careers. I won't tell you now what the other topics are but you can look in the description if you want a big spoiler. Anyway this is an edit of both parts that Luke put out with a little gap between the two the second half actually came out quite a bit longer than the first but overall it's over two hours so there's plenty to get your teeth into it originally went out on video and there are a couple of references to visual things such as my weight loss after the aforementioned uh, holiday <laughs> inverted commas but all the rest is perfectly appropriate for audio just a quick correction david blaine who we talk about during this conversation and obviously i did a podcast about his uh, starvation stunt above the below. He held his breath with assisted oxygen on the Oprah show for just over 17 minutes. I think I say 19, first of all. There's no spoken outro to this episode. The next episode will be a return to the series on Darren Brown's book, Happy, and that will be out in late November, it's looking like. Also, look out for a Film Gold episode before then on the film Sorcerer, which I also did with Luke Thompson. And in fact, we recorded it around the same time as the Life and Life Only profile you're about to listen to. Again, it went out on video first, but there'll be an audio edit out soon. And that's it. Enjoy this episode. Even if you watched the videos when they came out, that was a while ago, and this is a nice condensed version of the two parts, and it's got our customary blend of humour and hopefully some depth as well. So all the best, and see you in November for the next episode. For now, I put you in the capable hands of Luke Thompson of Luke's English Podcast. Enjoy. Hello, Anthony. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very scared now about the weightiness of all these topics, but yeah, let's do it. So my first topic is is actually life and life only. That's the first topic. So the question is, what is life and life only? What's it all about? The podcast. Well, yeah, and generally, <laughs> what's life um, all about? But yeah, the podcast. What's the podcast all about then? Right. In about, um, about 2013 is the first time I actually started thinking about doing podcasts. It didn't happen for another six years, although I put a few things online. So I always had in my mind to do some sort of Beatles-related podcast, which turned out to be Glass Onion on John Lennon. But I had an idea for a general one because I have, I suppose, what is called an alternative view. I don't really think it's that alternative. And I call it a search for inner and outer truth. And it's a podcast about life. Partly, to be honest, my motive was that as soon as I started the John Lennon one, I thought it had a shelf life of about six months. And after a year, I thought, well, I can keep it going for a few months. 
And now it's been four years and I've already got the next three, four months already recorded, having these epic conversations. And uh, I kind of thought if I do a podcast about life, there's no way I'll ever run out of topics. So <laughs> it's partly that. So yeah, what it is, the inner truth is things like life coaching, which we'll get onto. And it's, I call it like getting yourself armor plated to take on the world. So it's self-development psychology. I studied psychology at college years ago. And then the outer truth is how you receive information. So there is stuff about conspiracies. Again, I, I would like to talk about the, the phrase, which I guess we are, mm -hmm. and how the world really works somewhat provably and somewhat theoretically, you know what I mean? Kind of found a way of getting those two strands because my own journey about 10 years ago, no, 15 years ago, I started discovering, let's say, alternative information and I started getting into self-development. So I've been on this 15-year sort of learning juggernaut and I found that there is a way of weaving those two things. So if you look after yourself and if you try and see what life is really like and what's important, you'll be in better condition physically, mentally, psychologically to tackle all the crap plus the good information that's coming in and trying to, you know, weave between the two. And then occasionally it is a impolite word would be a dumping ground for some episodes that I want to put in podcast form. So for example, I did one about 10 Rillington Place, which is a true crime thing I'm absolutely obsessed with. I used to live in Labbert Grove and I I've studied that to the hill, and I know a few other people I actually know a guy who wrote the only biography of John Christie. Who I don't know if your listeners will have heard of him, but he was a serial killer basically in the 40s and 50s. So occasionally you get those outlier episodes, but I try and weave it together. And then just recently I did an episode where I read a couple of my stories that you heard and said kind things about the other day. It's funny, almost during the conversation I weaved them together, so it's almost like something that sometimes goes on it's going on in my brain, <laughs> but that's it really. Inner and outer truth, a podcast about life. But within that, there's a load of stuff to talk about. And I, I typically read usually my essays and blog posts and I've found a nice modus operandi. I read a bit and then I interject and then I read a bit. And I always kind of know that I'll have stuff to say because I mean, you've been in this game long enough after a while where you get to, you trust that you'll have stuff to say about whatever topic, you know? Yeah. You kind of plan a lot of stuff and then you extemporize, you, you plan to, to improvise as it were. Yeah. It's a bit like teaching, isn't it? You have a lesson plan and you once you've planned a lot, you can then sort of dump it in the bin yeah. if you see fit, uh, as, as things arise in the classroom. Absolutely. Uh, so my next topic in my list of things that you have talked about on your show is, uh, cats. You talked about cats in your recent episode. What do you like about cats so much? Well, it's funny that a few years ago, I would have been one of the first people to quote the thing that someone said. I don't know if it's a quote or something. We've got the whole world in our pocket, a word of information in our pocket. You know, as I put on my podcast, we've got the Library of Alexandria in our pocket and we spend most of our time posting cat videos. <laughs> and you kind of get the point that perhaps we, we like trivial stuff because it's less effort than all this heavy stuff. But um, I'll make this a very short story. By some means, my parents came upon this cat it more or less ran away from its home. And around COVID time, I was staying with my parents. Uh, I'm not living at home, by the way. I'm 47. I moved out of home <laughs> when I was about 23. But just for a short time at COVID, I was dusting at whichever family member would take me because I was just coming back from Spain. Mm -hmm. And um, it wasn't a rescue as such. But I think the fascination is that 
we always think of them as mysterious and everyone's like, oh, we don't know why cats do things. But now with the internet, there are loads and loads of really good videos. And there's a couple of TED Talks, which I've used. They're, they're only about five minutes each. And they, they sort of explain their behavior. So they're a very interesting mixture of quite predictable, but then quite mysterious at the same time. And I just said on the last show that I think you can learn a lot from them because they're very good at protecting themselves and they're very good at self-care. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that we people in general are probably not very good at self-care. If you really analyze it, we probably spend all our time criticizing ourselves and not treating ourselves well. So there's a thing in the self-development genre of self-love. Again, we could make a joke about that, but let's not. You know, I've seen posts where talk about self-love, look, in yourself, look at yourself in the mirror and say, I love you and stuff like that. I wouldn't do that kind of thing. But the idea of just taking care of yourself and treating yourself like a friend. And the thing about cats is that people will say they're very selfish. And they probably are, if you take that literally. You know, they, they're not particularly loyal. They get attached to the house. Generally, dogs get attached to people. Cats get attached to houses. Mm. But within that, definitely with this cat, we've seen a real change because it was a real, literally a scaredy cat when it first arrived. It would just bolt at the first loud noise or anything. And then gradually I've seen it develop. So sort of bucking that thing that, that animals are always the same and that animals never change. And uh, I don't know, and obviously a lot of people will say, you know, stroking a cat and everything is very, very meditative, relaxing, and they just have a sort of obviously a peaceful thing. And my mum said something really interesting. So my parents are in their 70s and they're long retired. My mum said, having a cat, it's like having a grand, it's a female cat, it's like having yeah. a granddaughter in the house, but a granddaughter who doesn't make any noise and doesn't <laughs> take any looking after. <laughs> what could be better than that? <laughs> Yeah, they they always say dogs are very loyal and stuff, but with cats, it's actually a mistake to think that they're our pets. In fact, we work for them is kind of the way it works, yeah. isn't it? But you also talked about the way that cats purr. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was that in a TED talk, the purring thing? Mm. What what was that again? Yeah, it was a TED-Ed talk, which is not a, someone giving a speech. It's just these animated with someone narrating it. Yeah, they went through various things about their behavior, like why they like to... They go like to go on windowsills. It's because, in a nutshell, to a cat, I think I said a, ge- a genteel garden in the suburbs is no different to a jungle or a forest. They kind of almost think they're in the jungle, so they're always vigilant. But, yeah, apparently, I don't think this is settled science by any means, but um, mm. in this video they said something about the frequency of the purring can actually repair, what was it, bone and muscle, I think, bone and muscle tissue. Yeah, wow. I think that's what it said. And they actually said that, you know, obviously a lot of people like to have a cat sleeping on them yeah. on their lap or whatever and apparently again i can't vouch for the science but apparently you can heal your bone and muscle tissue very interesting idea though yeah, yeah. The, the frequency of the purring somehow is therapeutic mm. but yeah certainly stroking them and having them around is good isn't it it's good for our mental health and stuff like that definitely yeah there's someone someone once said uh Two minutes of striking a cat's like six months of therapy you know they're exaggerating <laughs> but you get the idea yeah definitely yeah. okay I'm going to move mm-hmm. on to, I think, a completely unrelated topic, except the fact that, you know, you've, you've talked about it recently. It's, it's the, the third topic in my list, and that is the Titanic. So a wild mm-hmm. tangent to something completely yeah. different, a complete yeah. deviation here. So the Titanic, Anthony, you did, what was it, two episodes or a whole episode about the Titanic? It's a very stupid question, but uh, why the Titanic? Why are you so interested in the Titanic? Oh, okay, here we go. Again, I wrote this massive uh, long blog thing about 10 years ago when I was living in Spain. And um, with Life for Life only, I've managed to use some of these. Like I was saying, I often 
read an essay I wrote years ago and interject. You know, often it's the stuff you absorb when you're a kid. And it actually goes back to when I was at primary school. One of our teachers played a probably about a 20 minute radio documentary about it. And I remember even as I think we must have been nine or 10, maybe 10, we're in the last year of primary school. We were so compelled by it. We actually said, oh, can we listen to that again tomorrow? Mm. I think the teacher was surprised. He's probably thinking, I'm going to get these nine-year-olds interested in a hundred-year-old story of a boat sinking. In a nutshell, yeah. I mean, it's it's such an incredible multi-layered story about society because at that time, 1912, they were living in what's, I think Mark Twain called it the Gilded Age. And it was a time before rock stars, but the rock stars were people like J.P. Morgan and Guggenheim, if you've heard of him, or the Strausses who run Macy's in New York. So they were the celebrities, and the Titanic was, at the time, just incredible luxury. If you look now, it's actually tiny compared to those enormous cruise ships. There's a, mm. I've seen a picture comparing the two. People will, of course, know the story from uh, the film in 1997. Yeah, They didn't mm. exist, obviously, but some of that wasn't too bad. It was strong on showing you the scale of it. It was strong on the special effects rather than the story. Yeah, and the moment when the boat sinks. I mean, that was that's a pretty yeah. uh, exciting part of the film and uh, historically accurate as well, I understand. I mean, that bit was because, yeah, the, the boat split in two. But yeah. the, re the really interesting part about it, I mean, it, it's such a study of uh, society at that time and human nature because basically you had three classes on the ship and the upper class were at the top, the second class were at the, were at the middle, in the middle, and the lower classes were at the bottom. If you've seen, I'm sure you've seen the famous Frost Report sketch, and it's John Cleese, Ronnie Barker, and Ronnie Corbett. Yeah. And the upper class guy's taller. They go down in size, and they say, I am upper class. I look down on him and him. I'm middle class. I look up to him and down to him. I get a feeling of superiority over them. Uh, that's the middle class guy who's like, I get a feeling of inferiority from him because he has innate breeding. But I get a sense of superiority over him because he is lower class. And yeah. the lower class guy goes, I get a pain in the side of my neck because yeah. he's always having to look up at the others. Oh, that's it, yeah. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. <laughs> I am middle class. <laughs> I know my place. <laughs> I look up to them both. But I don't look up to him as much as I look up to him. Because <laughs> he has got innate breeding. <laughs> I have got innate breeding, but I have not got any money. <laughs> so sometimes I look up to him. I still look up to him, because although I have money, I am vulgar. <laughs> but I'm not as vulgar as him, so I still look down on him. I know my place. <laughs> I look up to them both. But while I am poor, I am industrious, honest, and trustworthy. Had I the inclination, I could look down on them. <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> we all know our place, but what do we get out of it? I get a feeling of superiority over them. I get a feeling of inferiority from him. But a feeling of superiority over him. <laughs> I get a pain in the back of my neck. <laughs> 
Well, there's a whole thing about the classes in England as well, that the middle class protect the rich from the lower class, that they're this sort of buffer almost. Anyway, the point about it is that the position in the ship so perfectly mirrors society. But the other thing about it is that there's lots of revisionism. I've got this massive 900-page book or something I read a few years ago that refuted some details of the official story. But basically, I'm sure you know that when it collided with the iceberg, it made this massive gash because what they did, they actually would have been better to hit it head on. But obviously, they're not. the guy is thinking, well, I'm not just going to let this happen. So what they did, they tried to turn, but because they didn't turn quick enough, it went all along the side. It made this massive gash in the side. Yeah. But the whole point of it is the higher you were on the ship, the less impact it would have. So the rich people were kind of going, oh, that was a bit uh, queer, meaning strange. <laughs> they just felt this little jolt. And then the middle class people in the middle would have would felt a bit more. And then the, the guys working in the boiler room who are probably earning, I don't know, five pounds a year or something ridiculous like that. Mm. They were the ones, if you think of it in war, on the front line feeling the impact because there's gallons of gallons of water coming in every second or every minute. I don't know what the details are, but yeah. so it's a very interesting mirror in that if you take, for example, the financial crisis of 2008, if you are rich in 2008, you're not going to be feeling that too much, right? Mm. But then obviously if you're poor, your house is going to get foreclosed. And there's all these stories. So it's a perfect mirror of how the poor receive disasters directly. And then the higher you are up the social scale, the less you're impacted. Yeah. But then you get the absolute opposite of that, is that when they were on the lifeboats, and famously there weren't enough lifeboats because the regulations, they followed the regulations and even had four extra boats. But when they all got on the lifeboat, suddenly you've got a rich guy and a very poor guy, and they have to spend eight hours on a boat together, and they can't escape each other. So it's such a fascinating story of how the classes are different, but in the end everything's equalised. The other thing is that it's so utterly surreal. Try and imagine this for a second. Obviously, it's a, it's a horror story. It's horrific. There's 2,200 people, 2,200 people on board. 700 get put off in the lifeboat. So obviously, 1,500 odd die. Try and yeah. imagine when that boat goes down, there's 1,500 people all screaming in freezing water where the book I had calculates you probably survive about 10 minutes if you're lucky. So these are all the, they're all in the water. Yes. You're screaming in the water. Yeah. Yeah. At okay. 2.30 in the morning when, you know, about three hours earlier, all they would have expected was just to go on a nice warm, you know, have a nice dinner and go to bed. It's utterly surreal. And then you've got all the story of the wireless operator. And I made a joke and I, I made it clear I wasn't making light of the disaster. But you've got all these ships and they've all got these very primitive radio sets, wireless sets, and they're all sending these messages and you can see in the Cameron film and then in a film called A Night to Remember, which is a black and white film, which is quite faithful for its time. It's almost like the most primitive WhatsApp group. And uh, <laughs> I just, you know, I was trying to make, make light of what was a very heavy story. So you've got all these messages and sometimes they don't get the messages. Sometimes the messages get scrambled. And it's like having 100 people in a WhatsApp group. You know, you get all these messages. <laughs> but it's such an incredible story. And then uh, even in, in death, the lower class passengers were treated differently because apparently when uh, there was a rescue ship, not the one that picked up the passengers, one that went about a week later to try and pick up bodies. I think if they didn't have ID on them or if they didn't, I don't know if they looked poor or whatever, they didn't identify them and give them a dignified burial. So wow. in a nutshell, it's a weird mixture of how the classes are different, but then everyone gets equalized in a disaster because a rich guy is not going to do any better in freezing water than a poor guy. 
Yeah. Very interesting. So it's, it's really a sort of a little case study about class in the, the last century. Yeah. It's really okay. interesting. What do you think about it? Can I turn it back on you? I don't know. I mean, I think the, the story is really, really compelling, of course, because of the that sense of um, what's the what's the word for it, where you're super confident, but then it all comes crashing down. Complacency, uh, yeah. Complacency, but there's another one. Hubris, the hubris, hubris of it. You know, the idea, we've made this unsinkable boat and it's kind of like the pinnacle of modern engineering and stuff. And mm. uh, yeah, there's there's a sort of romantic element to it as well with all these high society people in this kind of very, yeah, very modern moment. And then mm. uh, in the moonlight, there's no moon. It's just a completely black sky, isn't it, with stars. It was a moonless night and the cloudless so. sky. Yeah. There was another weird thing, actually. Um, the lights stayed on, apparently, until about almost 30 seconds before the ship sank. They managed to, I don't know exactly how that works. It's something to do with the boilers keeping the furnace going. They're keeping the lights mm-hmm. on, keeping the electricity on. And these guys, you know, they were working till almost the end and the wireless operator. So there's lots of heroic stories. But then there was a story that, I don't know, because it's, it's very easy to get on the backs of rich people because they are, the really rich people do, it's almost impossible for them to be really in touch with a common man, even if they mm. want to be. But there's some story that as it was going down, Cosmo Duff Gordon, you can imagine how rich he was, and Lady Gordon, one of the boats only had 12 people out of 40. They were also underloaded. That's another story that I can't really go into now. Mm. Apparently, as it went down, this lady said to her assistant, oh, you'll never get your nightdress back. And it it almost seems a bit of a Hollywood thing because, you know, there's that sort of liberal underdog element that Hollywood loves putting in its stories. Mm. That sort of idea, rich people bad, poor people good, which was in the Cameron film. Yeah. In one of the English books, actually. <laughs> Class conscious overkill, they called it. The cutting edge. Uh, New English file. New English file. Classic course book. Oh, I can't find it. Which, do you know, which level? Sounds like an upper intermediate or an advanced, advanced one. Advanced, yeah. Advanced, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, the other thing was that it was a very complacent age, as you said, full of hubris. There's a, a line that Jack the Ripper, which is the famous Whitechapel, that was the end of the 19th century, quote, gave birth to the 20th century because it woke the society up. Because before that, they probably never thought that anyone, serial killer, could exist. Titanic was two years before the First World War started. It was also one year, in fact, before income tax and the Federal Reserve were introduced. Very That's interesting. on the more conspiratorial side. But it was just on the cusp of this four-year slaughter fest, which was the First World War. So it was a innocence was gradually going. And then obviously the 20th century was the death of innocence, really, if you think about it. Yeah. With everything that happened. So And the, the, the postmodern era, you know, like modernism gets to its point where it's like progress, adv- uh, making progress and sort of technological progress until it gets to a point where it's sort of like, yeah, these disasters happen and the technology ends up being catastrophic for humans with yeah. the machine guns in World War One and, and all the rest of it. And that sort of, yeah, I guess led to that postmodern era, which is a rejection of a lot of those those ideas of progress and modernization mm. that sort of leads us into that sort of second half of the last century which was all about questioning what's what it's all uh, about and uh, questioning all the narratives and stuff that we'd all ascribed to yeah a friend of mine was uh, we were chatting we talk a lot about you know the modern world and media and stuff and he came up with a great line he said no one's quite sure when people are being truthful or ironic everything is so topsy-turvy now mm-hmm. that you know, because the, the news to me, mainstream news, so resembles a kind of comedy show, like a bad comedy show. Because <laughs> like the day to day. 
Exactly, yeah. And you did a good – I watched one of your stand-up videos that you, that's on YouTube, right? And you were yeah. talking about how um, the media talks like this. Today, 200 people died in an air crash in Nigeria. You know, It's God, up here. Don't... Reports are coming in of an air crash in Nigeria. Yeah. It's very strange. I'm talking, you know, like, uh, yeah, I don't know what the story would be. Reports have come in indicating that up to 1,500 people have been injured in the accident. Yeah. You know, experts are yet to make a statement. That sort of weird register, yeah. that, that this tone that they speak in. It's so mm-hmm. strange. And the other thing is that I was listening to a podcast, I can't remember which one it was, and they were saying, if you really look at the news, it's like, da 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 it's exciting music, lots of bright colours, blues and greens and reds, maybe not reds, blues and greens. Mm. And uh, it's basically... Here's loads of bad news. Here's loads of bad news. Here's loads of bad news. Here's a nice bit of news at the end about a cat being rescued from a tree. Join us tomorrow for more shit news. Essentially, that is what they're saying. Join us yeah. tomorrow for up-to-the-minute news. Here's loads of news which is going to make you afraid of the world. Yeah. But don't worry, you know, sleep tight, as Bill Hicks would say. Bill <laughs> Hicks is one of my heroes, as you know. Mm. Next topic, Anthony, is travelling. You've mm. travelled around a bit, haven't you? You've been around a bit, I've been around say. the block a few times, yeah. So tell me about your travelling experiences. Where have you been and what counts as your favourite or most memorable or perhaps even life-changing travelling experience that you've had? Well, could I mention the one that I put in the last podcast? Because I think that worked really well as a metaphor. and I wasn't mm. really intending it. And again, it was a funny thing where I was reading it and then had a bit of a brainwave, if you like. Where have I been? Well, I lived in Thailand, briefly lived in Laos as well. So Vietnam, Cambodia, been around yeah. that area. South America, I've been to a couple of places, Colombia, Ecuador. I went to India. I could talk about that if you want. It's indescribable. It's the only way I can describe it or not describe it. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird one, India, because obviously the British Empire is so implicated in India's quote-unquote development. And some people will say, well, they absolutely destroyed the country. I did meet people in India, you know, I'd had a lot of conversations on trains because educated Indians do tend to speak good English. Mm. And a lot of them like uh, the British Empire and what the British did. But, you know, in Spain, they're supporters of Franco. I mean, I I had a massive, they had an argument, but they were good friends. So it was a sort of a heated debate. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Merton, let's have a heated debate. (laughs) It was one of those. Yeah, India, it's so weird. In Delhi, which is the capital, I think officially the, the capital is... Is it called New Delhi or is it Delhi? I don't know. It was New Delhi, wasn't it? I'm not sure. I can check. Yeah, if you think of if you think of Delhi, you can definitely make a, a distinction between New and Old Delhi. And they had the Commonwealth Games, for example, in New Delhi. And if you go to the good areas of Delhi, they're these lovely, quite wide boulevards, and it's pretty clean. And then you go to Old Delhi, and it's it's like something you can't even describe. You know, the amount of people. I took a lot of photos and made some videos while I was there. And, you know, there's loads and loads of rubbish and there's such a clear distinction. I was thought of India as a more extreme version of Thailand because in Thailand you see old buildings next to plush hotels. You see that side by side. But Thailand is developing. Obviously, India is developing in one sense, but I would argue that really it's only the top portion of it that's developing. While well, the rest is getting worse and worse. Sorry, By the way, I think that New Delhi is the name of the city and Delhi is the name of the area that the city is in. Uh, okay. That's my quick answer. 
So yeah, I mean, we talked about a class system in the UK. I mean, they've mm. they have still have or used to have that caste system in India, which obviously is is probably going to be reflected in the way that uh, the sort of upper classes are the ones that are getting all the benefits of the development that are happening there. And it's yeah, it's yeah. a certain type of development where the underclass probably um, still live in complete poverty. Or going and lower, like, even going yeah, lower, lower. You'll probably I mean, like uh, India is one of the developing economies, isn't it? As well, and also the population is. Um, rapidly increasing is it already or going to be more populous than china i'm just gonna say we're just reaching a point i haven't checked recently they're almost exactly the same and they are almost not quite 50 percent of the world listeners can check that can't they but it's something like two billion each and the population of the world's about eight billion so we're just reaching an interesting point i mean imagine the whole country was locked down can you imagine that yeah one and a half billion or however long it however many it is yeah but yeah, I had this travel story. Basically, I was traveling around the Mekong Delta. This before I lived in Thailand. I did the old backpacking. I think it was about 23, 24, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read uh, this story just before in my last podcast. It was funny because I went backpacking. First port of call was Thailand, but because I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. And, you know, you'd, you'd be going, oh, my God, what is this? What have I walked into? And of course, in reality, it's not really like that, particularly as the backpacking circuit, I don't know what it's like now, but 20 years ago, whenever that was, you know, they direct you to certain places and everything. But what was funny was that I think the amount you pack your suitcase is a quite a nice, or, or backpack, sorry, mm. it's quite a nice metaphor for how insecure you are. Because if you, if you pack it to the hilt, it's almost like saying, I don't want anything spontaneous or weird to happen. I want to be in control. And what was so funny was that I had this backpack and it was so packed with, you know, stuff like water purification tablets that I'd never need. It was so hard on my back because I've always had a few back problems. But weirdly enough, it had a handle on the side. So I ended up carrying it, which is obviously like carrying it like a suitcase. And the whole point (laughs) is that I'm a backpacker. I'm not a tourist. I use a backpack, not a suitcase. And here I am carrying it like a suitcase. I remember laughing at myself for that. Because you were so concerned about having clean water to drink that you were willing to break your back carrying the water purification tablets around. Well, just in general, I think I'd read a... There was a book literally called Before You Go, and it was all right, but I think it was designed for people going to really remote areas. Basically, to cut a very long story short, I lost my backpack. It was a kind of a mix-up between two boats of different companies, but they weren't marked. To be honest, they may not even be real companies, I don't know. But yeah. um, I lost my backpack and it was going to be, it was going to take hours or I'd have to come back the next day. And I was actually on a tour. You had your passports and your money yeah. and stuff in a bum sure. bag kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So you, you you had to like say farewell to your bag. You'd probably never see it again after it went off on another boat. Yeah. The interesting thing is that the programmed reaction is to go, oh no, I've lost all my stuff. But then someone that I was traveling with said uh, almost for a joke oh well you did you were complaining that you weren't traveling light enough and that's what i thought yes i'm traveling light look at this all i've got's this what a player i am you know what a great <laughs> traveler i am but then I, I suddenly thought well people will lend you stuff you ever get in an emergency i mean if you, even if you're in the street and you get in an emergency the average passerby if they're a decent person will probably help you in in some way yeah and that's what you learn. So I learned that all I'd been doing up to then was just controlling everything. Okay, it's different if you have a stressful job and you, you want to go away for two weeks in the sun. You know, I'm not saying in any stretch that's a bad thing at all. But the idea of this was that we had months and we were traveling on a budget. But then I found that I was just controlling everything. 
And then yeah. suddenly I had this wonderful opportunity inadvertently to be more free and spontaneous. So I just thought it worked well. And I, going with the spirit of life and life only, I had the idea of traveling light in your mind, you know, being detached and not trying to control everything and not trying to predict. I can't remember. There's a term in life coaching. It's like clairvoyance or something, but in a bad way in that you're, we're always trying to predict the future and we're always preempting the future, mm. you know? living in the moment you can travel light in your mind basically yeah so it kind of like taught you to kind of let go a bit and not worry too much and not try to control everything that's happening must have been quite liberating yeah definitely but it taught mm. me a lesson i've never forgotten it and then years and years later when i started a blog which is pre-podcast i thought well I'll, oh yeah i'll write about that and you know i stuck a couple of details in but it was basically a true story yeah i, I liked it Moving on mm. to teaching English, which you've mm. done in several places. I wanted to talk to you about not so much like the learning English and teaching side of it, but more the experience as an English teacher of working with other people. So uh, having a group class or having a one-to-one -one lesson mm. and having to deal with the group dynamics or the interpersonal dynamics. How have mm. you found, how have you managed to deal with that sense of interpersonal dynamics when you're teaching a, gr a group of people? Well, since I'm a psychology guy, as you know, in one way, it's a wonderful, same as um, I was manager of a William Hill and I, and I hated, it's a betting shop for those who don't know, and I hated the job, but as an anthropological study, it was pretty interesting. Well, as you know, if you look at it in a technical way, we've got all these icebreaker things to say, you get a group of 10 adults. I haven't really taught children since one year I did. I was Never again. Defeated. Yeah, I was <laughs> defeated. Apart from the occasion, I had a teenage class in Italy, but they're all quite high level. I think that's important, isn't it? They get a group of 10 adults who probably have never met each other. It's very interesting that, you know, if you get them learning each other's names, then that's fine. You know, and there's practical stuff you do. But what I found amazing is that occasionally you get 10 people, they come in a room, and for some reason, as soon as they sit down, even before they've talked to each other, there's a warm atmosphere, and you just kind of know it's going to go well. And it just goes really well just from the first second. Of course, that lifts me and you and your teaching. You know, we need to be lifted by the students as well as the other way around, right? And then I've had other classes and I just do exactly the same thing. But for some reason, they just either don't like each other or they're just not interested in each other or maybe they're just really reserved. And you can always tell because those classes, they, they won't use each other's names. When you get them doing group stuff, pair work in threes or whatever but i like doing stuff where one person has to ask a question across the room yeah and you go around and either like, in a chain or something running like dictations and things like that yeah things like that so they're just forced to interact but then you'll find um they'll often say oh, oh you instead of using their name yeah, and it's yeah, just yeah. Like, this could be after three four months it's bizarre i can't quite explain it so really the dynamics thing is interesting and on the more humorous side you must have had this have you ever had they're sort of grammar fiends. I like people who like grammar because I actually love teaching grammar. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by grammar. But have you ever had a student who sort of sits there not saying much and then out of the blue for the snow reason, he'll go, can you explain past modals? What's the difference between may have, might have, and could have? And I'm like, oh, where did that come from? 
Yeah. Have you ever had that? Like, a, oh, just, yeah, just shouting out random grammar questions. It's, it's hilarious, really. Yeah, there's the people who basically their entire experience of learning English has been sort of studying the, the grammar in painstaking detail. Yeah, yeah. And then they find themselves in a classroom. And so this is now there. They, they have to somehow put these two things together of like, so I've learned my journey of learning English so far has been understanding the rules. And now here I am in this kind of communication situation. And so they kind of like, well, uh, I better try and impose my knowledge of grammar here and they will ask a question about grammar which isn't a question it's a test in fact yeah i've yeah, been test, tested tested it. lots of times by students yeah. and you suddenly feel like yeah you're you're being tested and you have to think on your feet and also other yeah. questions like personal questions that they ask you as well to test you they'll just ask you if you're married and things mm. like that but uh that, going back to that thing about having like you you do exactly the same thing one group it's just goes really well mm. things go really smoothly and another group, you do the same thing, and it's just a total disaster. I've also found the atmosphere in a, in a room to be completely different. So I've taught, for example, in the same classroom, teaching one group where everything's going really well, and you remember the room, you remember that group, the room seems so much smaller in your memory. And then teaching to another group in the same room but they don't get on with each other and there's a horrible atmosphere it feels mm. like there's acres of space in the room mm. and also the air seems so much thicker and heavier it's a really yeah. weird phenomenon it's the same thing in stand-up as well you get some rooms where you can just you just feel that there's something really good in the air and everyone's responding really well on the same wavelength and then mm. you get the same another room and you do the same material and mm. it's just a tumbleweed you know so yeah i don't understand that i suppose it's Strange. just the combination of of individuals it's like you know you mix them up and you you see what you get some of them are going to go together well and others just not yeah that's a very weird thing I rely on inspiration to some extent. I mean, I can do a, quite a mechanical lesson if I have to. Mm -hmm. I, I think I transmit, I'm sure you're the same, I transmit enthusiasm when I'm enthusiastic. And I, I make a professional job of not transmitting boredom, but they probably, when I taught kids, I, I felt like they were picking up on absolutely everything, you know, the yeah. adults maybe a bit less, but it's not that the classes necessarily go badly. It's just for some reason they're not interested in each other. Mm. But I suppose then my more professional side would kick in and I'd do a more standard class. But yeah. with the other ones, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. The room seems smaller because everything's more intimate. And funnily enough, if you watch, if you notice, if you have lots of people around a table and it's quite intimate and everyone's sharing personal stuff in a nice way, everyone leans in. So it is literally mm. like there's a bit less space. It's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I was going to ask you, actually, if you've ever taught in, in weird situations. Like, have your classrooms always been fairly reasonable? Have your teaching environments always been fairly good, fairly decent? Or have you ever taught in weird situations? Well, right at the beginning, when I moved to Thailand, I didn't have a job sorted. But, there are, you know, it's not that difficult to find a job over there. Mm. The first couple of jobs I had were just terrible, really. But it was just a, in at the deep end. To make a generalization, Thai people are pretty non-confrontational. So in a way, it's the best breeding yeah. ground, if you like. But it was quite funny. I went to this school. Originally, I was going to be teaching in a high school, which I never actually did. And I did a trial class. And <laughs> in, a, in a high school with like, like uh, kids, were they like teenagers? Yeah, they're about 12 or 13. But the thing about, again, generalizing Thai kids, they're not so much disruptive. They just look really bored if they're bored and it's really hot all the time and the worst schools don't have any air conditioning or fans everyone's sweating and they just get sleepier and sleepier and there was a thai woman probably 45 years old mm -hmm. and she was at the back of the class watching me 
and I had to do about half an hour with 40 to 45, 12 or 13. I'm thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I thought I'll start with a joke. <laughs> the perfect audience, of course, they're going to get it and react Yeah, of course to they're going to get it. Yeah. So I said, <laughs> right, I want all your names. And I started as if I was going to get every 45 people's names. Yeah. And uh, the, the woman at the back just sort of, what? <laughs> and um, there was a teacher there, this is really interesting, who'd learned Thai. Because some people can learn Thai, Chinese, Japanese, those kind of languages that seem almost impossible when you hear them. He'd learned really good Thai, but he hadn't told anyone he was learning Thai because he wanted to know what the Thai people were saying about him. <laughs> and I won't divulge some of the stuff he said, but he said to me, can I swear? Or? Yeah. He said to me, this middle-aged woman said in Thai to her colleague, what the fuck is this idiot doing <laughs> in Thai? <laughs> he said that's a basic translation of what she said. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I was... I was ready to go home and it was just awful. And then I found a, what they call a language school or a language academy. And then suddenly it's one-to-ones and, um, you know, classes of six, seven. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So probably had all kinds of stuff. Have you ever had students who they, they just don't appear for 20 classes? Yeah. They, they're blown all their money and then they suddenly appear <laughs> and they go, can you tell me what, what you've done since I've been away? It's like It'd be easier to tell you what we haven't done. Exactly, yeah. Well, they, they come back as if nothing's happened. It's ready to fit back in. And it's like, yeah, and they say, can you give me photocopies of everything I've missed? It's like, what? Like, are, you, are you kidding? That's about half yeah. a tree I would be. I need to photocopy for you. You do get some very flaky students. Yeah. I've had some pretty dodgy classrooms before. I taught in a room in London and I was writing on the whiteboard. It was a very dil- sort of dilapidated old building. And I was up in the cobwebby sort of rooms at the top of the building, writing on a this sketchy old whiteboard. And the whiteboard just fell off the wall. It just popped oh, really? off the wall, slam onto the floor at everyone's feet. So I just propped it up against the wall and it left a, a clean space because all the wallpaper around the whiteboard was filthy and disgusting. Mm. But when the whiteboard fell off, it left this perfect clean space that was actually cleaner than the whiteboard itself. Yeah. And so I just start, I could just continue the lesson and wrote on the wall mm. where the whiteboard had been. And it was a kind of a gloss paint. So it actually worked better just writing directly on the wall than it did writing on the whiteboard. So uh, yeah. <laughs> just in the middle of the lesson, the whole thing just came down. Everyone yeah, was amazing. shocked and I just moved it to one side and just carried on writing on the wall. I yeah, taught in a, in a little cupboard once when the school was full and they put me into this little cupboard. And we were all sitting around with our knees kind of touching each other, like about six of us in the room. And I had the whiteboard leaning up against a door. And ev- every time anyone tried to come in, the door would slam me on the back of the head. <laughs> And yeah, lots of other, lots of other stupid things like that. It's good. I wish I had recordings of all of the stupid and funny moments that have come up Mm. in English lessons over the years, because there have been a lot, like including people saying really weird things and just odd moments and funny characters. I wish I'd recorded it all. I think we'll move on though, Anthony. Life coaching is the next thing. So this Mm. is another thing that you do. So life coaching, what is it and how do you do it? Right. So life coaching is a fairly modern invention, if you like. It's slightly undefined. The way I look at it, if you had severe anxiety or severe depression, you would need to go to a therapist, a licensed therapist. In a sense, a life coach, if you had, let's say, if you were quite stressed or you had some level of anxiety, but not chronic anxiety, or you didn't seem to have a direction or whatever it was, you're not very good at managing your life, perhaps, then you might go to a life coach. I did write a thing about this ages ago. I think it was one of the Life and Life Only episodes. I tried to define it 
it's almost a bit like a bit like a friend. There's a placebo element to it because if you're talking to someone who you feel has knowledge and knows what they're talking about, it's like the placebo thing with a doctor. When someone goes to a doctor they like, they often magically get better. It could be seen as a, a first step towards therapy or as a separate thing, but it's basically people who are struggling with motivation and it's a conversation. I think I noted on that podcast you heard recently, it's interesting with my life, I've always been struggling with identity and now I find myself, so I do English classes, life coaching, I have a meetup group, I do podcasts and I write. And in a funny way, often an idea from a meetup group will end up in my English class. An idea from an English class will end up in my podcast. Mm -hmm. And I've realized in the end, it's all about conversations. So life coaching is essentially an ongoing dialogue. And you have to know what you're doing. Obviously, you have to have some knowledge and there's practical steps. But you suss out generally, some people are looking for very practical steps. So maybe they're in America, they have these really cheesy slogans like, I'm great, but I want to be even better. It's that kind of thing. So some people, it's successful people and they want to be even more successful. You know, they want to learn like loads of really good practical motion, motivational tips. And I could do that. You know, it's rather like an English, you know, as we're saying with an English class, someone say, I want to improve my grammar or my vocab. I don't want any sort of funny stories or, or interesting conversation. I just mm -hmm. want that, that, and that. Mm -hmm. And I can do mm -hmm. that. But like with the English teaching, I much prefer having an interesting dialogue gets quite intimate and I share stuff about my life and it's just a really nice dialogue. And what you get out of it is that you can make improvements. But the thing with life coaching is that the person already has the answers and you never use, you'll, you'll appreciate this as an English teacher, you never use modals like should. You say, perhaps you could do this. Mm. Have you considered doing this? But it doesn't have a set thing. Essentially, if you think of it as someone paying money for a service, whether that's English or anything, I try and think of it as in the same envelope as my English teaching in a way, though they're mm. obviously going to be native speakers. Although funnily enough, I was coaching a Spanish lady last year and there was some English, English element to it as well. In a nutshell, it's a dialogue helping people improve their life. So there is a therapeutic aspect to it. Do you ever find that the two sort of switch over that you just mentioned life coaching, which kind of included bits of English training? Do you ever find Absolutely. that as an English teacher, you end up becoming a sort of a life coach for your students as well? Absolutely. What, what are some of the most common areas that you have to deal with in that regard? Motivation just, and stuff. Yeah. Confidence, just, confidence a lot, issues. A lot of it is stress. I'm sure you've found this. You often teach stressed out business men or women. And they get a double whammy. They get to get everything off their chest while speaking English. So it works <laughs> great for them. And you do feel like, you know, you are a listener sometimes. But like I was saying, yeah, I mean, those, those two overlap. The meetup overlaps. I start talking about stuff and I often impart stuff I've learned from self-development books or podcasts, or whatever it is. And it just gradually develops, really. But it's just they might be stressed. They might be lacking direction. It could be anything, really. Mm, okay. But I, I prefer the emotional side to the practical side, but there's a bit of both, obviously. Yeah, definitely. I, I often hear teachers talking about how they also have to be therapists for their students because there's often learning English. It's not just about, you know, learning the language and using it, but like the mentality and dealing with confidence issues is a huge part of it. And you sometimes get the impression that people are blocked in terms of pronunciation because they're all, it's all messed up with their identity and how they feel about themselves and, and things like that. French people, for example, you said you have a lot of French students. Mm. French people mostly generally are quite, tra well, sort of traumatized, or maybe I should just say they've all gone through bad experiences at school. 
And now they've got these sort of major confidence issues around speaking English because they remember the way that they were treated at school. And like lessons at school are all not very much fun. They're all about translating grammar, lots of written work. And they get like very severely criticised and sort of almost punished by their teachers for making mistakes. And they get judged between each other too. So it sort of creates the environment in which speaking English for them is like really a stressful, problematic thing. And a lot of of French people have got very good English as well. They don't admit it. They're not willing to admit it to themselves. They might have a strong accent, but a lot of the, especially the vocab, actually translates really well for them. Mm. So my wife, for example, she's French and she'll be talking to my parents and she'll say something and they'll be like, wow, your English is good. And she'll say to me, actually, to be honest, it's just the same in French. I just translated it. And often translating from French to English results in this very impressive English. Um, It sounds more elegant, doesn't it? Because they're taking the Latin words so often. It's the same in, obviously, Spanish, Italian as well. If you translate it directly, it comes out as really fancy because it's the Latin word, the longer word. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. But nevertheless, you know, yeah, French people often have confidence issues, which is like a whole other set of things. You you can't really solve those problems with grammar rules or phonemes and stuff like that. So there's there is always that other element, the human element. What kind of levels do you teach or do you teach all levels? I teach all levels. This year, for some reason, my boss has given me B1 classes. So I'm teaching good, solid B1. And last year, last year it was B2. B2, I think, is my favourite level. B1 is great too. C2 is also fantastic. But then you're dealing with a situation where for a lot of the students at C1, that's it. They're not going to get better than that. And getting through to C2 is a bit of a mystery and it's very hard to get to C2 in English because that means being flawless, but also having a certain control and certain level of naturalness in the in the language. And it's hard to really acquire that unless you have grown up in the country or something like that. But having said that, I've met lots of students who do through sheer bloody mindedness and by focusing and studying, they actually do break through to, to C2. So that's an amazing thing. What about you? What what kind of groups do you teach at the moment? Well, at the moment, I'm, I'm literally only doing uh, remote. So it'd be one-to-one. Like this, one-to-one with adults. Yeah. But I found myself a niche. Yeah, B1 upwards, as, as I'm the same. Just for my mm-hmm. listeners, maybe you don't know what we're talking about. B1 is right in the middle, isn't it? Solid, intermediate, fairly good. B2 is upper intermediate, C1 is advanced, C2 is proficiency. But then I do have, um, I am teaching a lady who is A2, let's call it, elementary. And I, yeah. and I, I was really dreading it, I'll be honest. But it's a different journey. It's quite nice. And it feels almost a little bit more, quote unquote, real teaching, because you're yeah. taking someone from the ground up almost. Yeah. you know. And I'm not saying that obviously high levels is not real teaching. It is. It's just a different thing. It's a softer kind of thing, isn't it, at a high level, in the sense that you end up getting into topics and getting into pragmatics and stuff, whereas at uh, an A2 level, it's about conjugating all the verbs in third person and negatives and then dealing with different tenses and the basics, absolute basics. Yeah, it's always a frightening prospect when you get an elementary class. You think, oh, my God, mm-hmm. because there's no breathing space. In an advanced class, you can always have a discussion for 15 minutes if mm-hmm. you need to. But with an elementary group, there's really no way you can there's go. No flow. There's no flow, really, is there? But, but having be, said, could be, but yeah. Having said that, you can get to a state where you there is some flow, but you have to be quite contrived about it. 
you end up doing things like playing very limited and controlled kinds of games and things, or having role play conversations where basically they're just moving around the room, having exactly the same interaction with different right. people. What do you do? I'm a teacher. What are you doing at the moment? I'm learning French. Just those sorts of things. There's just one very quick story when we were talking about English teaching. In Thailand, there are some very high level students. Generally, people who've lived abroad, and we were talking about Thai society, and we made the same point that when you go outside your own country and then come back, you get a much better idea of the limitations of your own culture. Yeah. And to me, as a Westerner, Thai culture seemed more extreme and it was more collectivist. This guy, he'd learned this word collectivist and he was really happy with it. And we had a long discussion about individual versus collective. In schools, you were saying about the other students laughing at them. In Thailand, they have a brutal sense of humor. It's just yeah. a different sense of humor and it involves laughing. So if someone makes a mistake in a, in a class of 40, almost the whole rest of the class would just point and laugh. But then I'd have students who if they were from quite moneyed families, they'd be able to go abroad to Australia. They went often because it's mm. nearer America or Britain or Ireland as well. And uh, a couple of people came back. They were young people, 18, 19. They came back from three months in Australia or the States, and they'd want to talk about Thai culture. And you just would not recognize the person who'd left. I mean, one guy came back with an Australian accent, which is hilarious, really authentic as well. Oh, yeah. G'day, guys. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just like back that. from Australia. A bit like that, yeah. It's sort of more of a relaxed, so that kind of relaxed Australian. But it was so funny. That's one of the best things about the job sometimes, obviously seeing the journey, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Especially with like sort of younger university age students. Yeah, I had that experience in Japan, meeting younger students and teaching them for a, you know, a few months. And then they off, off they go to have some experience. They come back and they're like, they've totally grown up and everything. Strange. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Teaching's amazing. One of the things I love about doing the podcast as well is that the thing about teaching is that you would teach students for a, maybe a few weeks or a few months and then it's like, bye, see you, that's it. And then they go away and you never ever see them ever again. You never get a sense of what happened next. So there was always that sense that with teaching, you're just constantly saying goodbye to these people. Yeah. But with the podcast, what I like about it is that there's this sense of like a develop, like a long term linear sort of long-term thing and also some people have listened to episodes for a long time and they tell you about their progress and their journey and you you know you get really get the sense of how it works long term rather than just over a few weeks you know the impact that you have over a few weeks versus the impact you have over months and months and years and years and stuff it, people have told me that listening to the podcast long term has really helped so that's very satisfying oh, of course as a teacher yeah. yeah very much so yes anthony we are Halfway through the topics, <laughs> right? We knew uh, this was going to happen, though, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, we did. And I don't have time to finish all of this off because to talk about the other ones, we'd need to have a bit more time because there's some good topics in there. So would you be available slash willing to conclude this conversation at a later date? Yeah. So I yeah. think it's probably best if we pause here and then we can continue and deal with the other six topics that I've got lined up for you. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to doing part two. Excellent. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Let's say hello to Anthony. Hello, Anthony. Hi. Thanks for having me back. I'm currently, uh, in case your listeners are wondering why I've lost so much weight since part one and got, <laughs> got that slightly post-illness, starey-eyed look, I have just been ill, so um, I have been on some health farms since part one. It's been um, two weeks, I think, since we recorded part one. Hmm. 
Okay. I look healthier than I did two weeks ago and you, you look slightly less healthy or you're certainly thinner. Yeah. For me, I just had a week of holiday at the seaside, which was lovely. But what about you? What, what has happened to you over the last two weeks? I've just had my first COVID holiday, you might call it. The only member of my family who hadn't had COVID. And then I was, uh, yeah, about a couple of weeks ago, 10 days ago, I was going through one of those periods where I wasn't having any rest at all. And I was, uh, I kind of knew something was brewing. <laughs> and I uh, um, just woke up feeling like death warmed up, as we might say in England. I thought I had tonsillitis because I used to get that quite a lot when I was a smoker, but I'm not a smoker now. Thought I had that, and then I did a test and found I had COVID. And yeah, it was about five pretty uh, hideous days, pretty surreal as well. But I always yeah. try and uh, look forward a bit or think for, in a forward way. And I always think that the times when I'm ill is the only time when I ever actually properly rest, in fact, and uh, do nothing, which for me generally means, I don't know, reading a book or something. <laughs> That's my doing nothing. But then you do feel uh, a little bit cleansed. For a week, I didn't eat anything other than yogurt and uh, fruit. And like I said, I did lose a bit of weight. Suddenly all my clothes fit, which is a nice bonus. But yeah, it's not the best way to achieve that. I do come out of it feeling quite calm because I have actually slowed down and properly relaxed. Now I'm feeling all right. I've got a bit of a cold, but doing all right. It's really nice when you come out of an illness like that. Obviously going through it's horrible. I mean, I had flu in December and that was just awful, like a proper case of real flu, not just the sort of, oh, I had a bit of flu. Mm. Like it was the, the genuine article. And that was just absolutely horrible. It's a hideous experience. You go through hell. And then when you start to feel better, oh, that's nice. Mm. You kind of rub your eyes and emerge blinking into the light. You know, you start to feel human again. So yeah, you have lost a bit of weight between mm. part one and part two of this. Yeah, catching COVID in 2023. I mean, that's, um, I don't know. It's a bit late, isn't it? Yeah, yeah a bit late to the game on that one. I don't know. That tends to happen with me. I don't know. I tend to be a bit slow in that regard. Like I suddenly <laughs> catch up with trends that were going about three years ago. I think it's a wake up call as well because I was really hammering it with a new job and all the teaching and the podcasting and everything. And it was just wasn't having any rest at all. I mean, yeah, a little bit, mm. but got to listen to your body. Burning the candle at both ends. Mm. Yes. Okay. Right. So are you ready to get stuck into some topics? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So the first item on my list this time is uh, David Blaine. Mm. So probably what we should do first is make sure everyone knows who David Blaine is. Could you describe who he is with the sort of international audience in mind? I wonder if everyone out there in the world is familiar with David Blaine. I think he's probably internationally famous. I feel like he would be, yeah. I mean, his job title would traditionally have been magician, although people tend to call him an illusionist, which is obviously along the same lines. It's funny that um, a lot of the time in America and Britain, you'll have these uh, more or less equivalents. And in England, of course, we have Darren Brown. The difference is that yeah. uh, Darren Brown seems much more of an introvert. Well, actually, maybe Blaine seemed an introvert as well. He had a kind of brooding intensity about him. But um, yeah, he became famous in the late 90s for street magic. And the idea was that instead of being, you know, in a studio and you get someone to sit down and do a card trick, he'd go out in the street. And the thing that he tapped into, I think, was that it doesn't matter if you're black, white, whatever race you are, doesn't young or old, rich or poor, you more or less have the same reaction when someone does some magic, which is actually that you start laughing. I don't know if you found that. You laugh just because it's kind of nice, you know, seeing someone do something. You go, oh, blimey, how did he do that? 
So yeah. he does. Uh, he used to do card tricks and things like that. But then he branched out and he make things disappear. And obviously, you know, you can be a bit skeptical about all that. I don't think him or Darren Brower is ever claiming that they're actually tapped into magic from some other place. They're just very, very skillful. But the interesting thing about David Blaine is that at some point, I think also in the late 90s, he decided that he wanted to test himself and do endurance stunts. Now, of course, the problem is that as soon as you start doing them, everyone's going to go, oh, right, that's a magic trick. You know, you didn't really bury yourself alive. The first one he did, he buried himself alive in a coffin. And they actually had, um, he was actually visible as well. They had some water between the coffin and what people could see. So people could actually view it. And I actually think, I think it was genuine. I think he was testing the limits because he was one of those people as well. He said from a young age, he, he was a very strange kid. He'd do things like shut himself in a closet or whatever, just to test himself, just to see how long he could stand it. And, uh, he would not eat and things like that. And uh, he started this parallel uh, career, I suppose, of what he would call performance art. The general idea being performance art is that the performer doesn't necessarily do a lot. They're just in a place. And the art comes from the way that people react to what they do. So, um, yeah, so you sort of had Darren and David at around the same time on different sides of the Atlantic um, mm -hmm. doing this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's sort of magic, modern magic, I suppose. Yes, definitely. Mm. David Blaine first became famous doing magic in the street, basically. Yeah, this mysterious aura. He'd be like, look at this. Let me show you something. Let me just try something. And um, he'd be doing these wild, amazing feats of illusion. And then people kind of like, yeah, losing their mind in the street and stuff. Fantastic. Yeah. And then he started doing these endurance feats, being able to do something really difficult for a very long time. Yeah. So that includes being shut in one small space for a long time or holding your breath underwater for a very long time, standing on the top of a, a very tall pillar for a very, very long time. Tell us about some of the things that he did then and uh, what do you think of them? Okay, well, in order, so he did Buried Alive, buried himself alive for seven days. Then there was ice. He was encased very, very close to the ice for about three days. And bear in mind, again, let's just say these were genuine. In all these, all these cases, he would not be uh, sleeping or eating either. Just that alone is difficult enough. But um, there's some good clips. Where he was on Joe Rogan a couple of years ago talking about the ice thing. I mean, he properly freaked out and started hallucinating. I mean, that was a pretty bad thing. And he, he said, I'd never in a million years do that again. Then he did another one. Yeah, he was on a pillar for a day and a half. But this one was quite good because... It actually had an ending, and what they did was they constructed uh, cardboard boxes in the last few hours, mm. and then at the very end they did a you know countdown ten, nine, eight, and he jumped into the boxes to finish it. So people liked that because there was a, some sort of ending rather than him just hanging around. Mm. And then there was the one that's probably the one I was always most interested in was the one called Above the Below. So what I did the podcast yeah. about where he um, was in a box suspended from a crane over the by Tower Bridge, 2003, yeah, and didn't eat for 44 days. Again, people have argued about, oh, did he have pure water or did it have electrolytes in it? But he actually came up with an explanation where electrolytes wouldn't have helped him. I was only there for the beginning. I think I went to Thailand to work, and uh, Channel 4 actually had a live webcam. And, of course, to some people, it just sounds the most ridiculous. Why would you bother just watching a guy doing nothing? But again, the performance art came from the reaction of the general public in England, which is really, really interesting. Basically, quite a lot of hate at the beginning. People going, oh, what are you doing? Bloody American coming over here with all your lofty ideas. 
And then as he got weaker and weaker, the British Sympathy for the Underdog came out. And then by the end, on the actual last day, which was a Sunday night, I remember, I mean, there were thousands of people there. It was very strange the way it, it turned into a massive party. And, you know, there were young girls. One young girl, David had thrown down his blanket. And you can imagine how bad that would have smelled and everything. And she was clutching it. And there were people having fancy relationships with him. The other thing about him, he was a very, very good-looking fella. You know, you have to say that. He had that yeah. mysterious way about him. I used to call it loping charisma. You know, he'd sort of amble around, always looking like he had plenty of time, but he was quite charismatic. And then he became famous for dating all these um, glamorous women like Madonna and Fiona Apple and various models and things. Every time he did endurance stuff, there always seemed to be a gorgeous woman waiting for him at the end of it, looking really worried. <laughs> oh, God, what states are you going to go come back in? <laughs> okay, the buried alive one. How long was he under the ground? Seven days. Again? Seven days. Mm. How did he breathe? Do you know? Yeah, they obviously had some sort of tube, and then they they had a tube for him to pee as well. But obviously he wasn't eating, so he wasn't producing too much. Okay. That was generally right. the deal they had there. Just enough to survive, basically. Okay. And what did he say about that experience? Just that it was an incredible learning experience. And I could totally get that. I think, I think people who like him or can tap into him, they can understand that, that when you take everything away, you gain a completely different perspective. I mean, he must be a meditator, obviously. We've talked about meditation. There's no mm. doubt in my mind. And when I look at his reading list, it's quite similar to mine. We've obviously read a lot of the same books and stuff. I, th I just think you learn, yeah, you learn a lot by having all the distractions taken away, really. That life is actually, I'd say with the, the one with the box, he said, you know, life is just a series of sunrises and sunsets. You know, obviously it's a bit more modern life, it's a bit more complicated than that. When you really actually boil it down, we live in a, a very complicated society, society that's made complicated. But when it comes down to it, you know, there's trees and there's breathing and there's, uh, or not breathing in his case, yeah. You know, sunrises and sunsets and smiles from people. You know, that was what sustained him because he was mm. isolated in these times. He said he would get off on, you know, seeing little kids, you know, staring in when he was buried alive. Go, oh, what's going on there? You know, same as when they receive magic as well. I think that's what he, yeah. he likes, you know, trying to connect with people. I just can't imagine what that would be like. I mean, mm. if anyone's got any feelings of claustrophobia, mm. then obviously that would be completely impossible. But um, even just lying still like that for seven days and not eating. I mean, absolutely yeah. incredible, really. And the ice one, yeah, so he was encased in a block of ice. So I guess they kind of hollowed out a large block of ice, mm. right? I guess they hollowed it out so there was a space inside this huge block of ice and he went inside and stood inside it for three straight days. Yeah, standing up, of course, as well. Standing up. Standing up, but like 72 hours is that three days? I think it was supposed to be... Uh, <laughs> Hold on. Sorry. It was a bit less. My math. 72 hours is three days, but I think it was supposed to be... I think it was supposed to be 61 or something, and he, they had to take him out about two hours from the end. Of course, he thought that... To him, that was a that was a terrible failure. There was obviously a gap. You know, he wasn't touching the ice, and it's hard to know how cold it was. You know, obviously, one of the things about him that maybe people got a bit bored with, including me, was that he'd always say, I'm cheating death. Mm. I was always pretty sure that I don't think David Blaine's in the business of dying for his art necessarily. But he was a pretty crazy guy. You know, he was, he was into testing the limits. There was an interesting thing with the, the box as well, because his mother had died of cancer and he was very, very close to his mother. I think his father had left when he was very young. And his mother had um, 
died quite an ag- agonizing death over a number of months. And he said, oh, you know, she never complained once. And in the box, he actually had a picture of his mother. And I have a theory that maybe what he was doing in a funny way was reenacting the suffering of his mother. If you think about it, just getting progressively weaker and weaker, but using her as his inspiration. You know, obviously, I mean, he's a very rich guy. He's got a brand. David Blaine is a brand. So I'm sure there's a business savvy side to him as well. But I I like to think that there is the other side, that it is personally cathartic for him. Yeah. I don't think he was risking his life, but I think he was taking it to the limit. The other one, yeah, was the breath hold. He was actually in, um, he stayed for a week. He was in some sort of, uh, it was like a glass bowl almost. A kind of a goldfish bowl yeah, like kind of thing. Goldfish bowl, yeah. Huge goldfish bowl and he was submerged in it with breathing apparatus so he could breathe. But he was basically under the water for, how long was a it? A week. A week. Yeah. And I've been in the bath for about 20 minutes mm. When we lie in the bath or in a swimming pool or something for about 20 minutes, your fingers start to go all wrinkly. They prune, yeah. They prune, yeah. So God knows what happened to him after seven days submerged in water. Yeah. Well, there's pictures of him, yeah. We could, we could put some links if you want. And uh, they just went completely white, his feet and his, his fingers. It's just like totally white. And uh, it was quite gruesome. But what he did with that one, that, that was the last one that I was probably really interested in. That was the one after the starvation one. Yeah, he was trying to break the breath hold record. But, of course, he's, a, he's an enormous handicap because he'd spent a week underwater already. And then the producers decided to make it more fun. They were going to put a load of chains on him like they would have done with Houdini because Houdini's basically his hero as well. So the breath hold started. He was already under a massive handicap. And then he had to um, release all these chains from his feet and hands just to make it more and more difficult. And, of course, didn't break the breath hold, still did whatever he did, seven minutes, incredible. So he spent, he spent seven days in, under the water, mm. and then after that seven-day experience, he decided to try to break the world record for holding your breath yeah. with chains on him as yeah. well. What? I know, yeah. it's silly, it's a bit it? much. But then he did manage to break the uh, record with, probably allowed to breathe pure oxygen, there's a separate record. And he did something like 19 minutes on one breath on the Oprah show. Yeah, it was extraordinary, yeah. And and quite stressful to watch mm. because at the very end, you know, after he'd broken the record and he's still holding his breath, you kind of think, What's going on mm. inside his body mm. after that time? And you know how desperate you get when you've we've all done it, we've all been in the bath, we've all dunked our head under the water and tried to hold our breath and you get to a point where you sort of stress out a bit and you quickly get to the surface and start breathing again. Mm. The level of stress must have been unbearable, I imagine. Yeah. He did a TED talk about it and it described it in quite a lot of detail. I spent the first five minutes underwater desperately trying to slow my heart rate down. I was just sitting there thinking, I've got to slow this down, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail. And I was getting more nervous and the heart rate just kept going up and up all the way up to 150 beats. Basically, it's the same thing that created my downfall at Lincoln Center. It was a waste of O2. When I made it to the halfway mark at eight minutes, I was 100% certain that I was not going to be able to make this. There was no way for me to do it. So I figured Oprah had dedicated an hour to doing this breath hold thing. If I had cracked early, it would be a whole show about how depressed I am. So. <laughs> So I figured I'm better off just fighting and staying there until I black out, at least, and they can pull me out and take care of me and all that. (laughs) 
I kept pushing to 10 minutes. At 10 minutes, you start getting all these really strong tingling sensations in your fingers and toes. And I knew that that was blood shunting, when the blood rushes away from your extremities to provide oxygen to your vital organs. At 11 minutes, I started feeling throbbing sensations in my legs, and my lips started to feel really strange. At minute 12, I started to have ringing in my ears, and I started to feel my arm going numb. And I'm a hypochondriac, and I remember arm numb means heart attack, so I started to really get paranoid. <laughs> then at 13 minutes, maybe because of the hypochondria, I started feeling pains all over my chest. It was, it was awful. At 14 minutes, I had these awful contractions, like this urge to breathe. <laughs> At 15 minutes, I was uh, suffering major O2 deprivation to the heart, and I started having ischemia to the heart. My heartbeat would go from 120 to 50 to 150 to 40 to 20 to 150 again. It would skip a beat, it would start, it would stop, and I felt all this. And I was sure that I was going to have a heart attack. So at 16 minutes, what I did is I slid my feet out because I knew that if I did go out, if I did have a heart attack, they'd have to d jump into the body and take my feet out before pulling me up. So I was really nervous. So I let my feet out and I started floating to the top. And I didn't take my head out, but I was just floating there waiting for my heart to stop. Just waiting. They had doctors with the, you know, so sitting there waiting. And then suddenly I hear screaming. And I think that there's some weird thing that I had died or something had happened. And then I realized that I had made it to 1632. So with the energy of, of, of everybody that was there, I decided to keep pushing. And I went to 17 minutes and four seconds. <laughs> I think the thing that is interesting about all these stunts is that we can all relate to them in a very small way. You know, probably we've all had some kind of confinement. We've mm. all been very cold, I imagine. So that was the ice one. We all know what heights are like, you know, when you're a kid and you go to a high building and you have that exciting but terrifying feeling of heights. And then we've probably all um, had a time we haven't been able to eat. We can all identify in a small way. I think yeah. the breath hold. I suppose when you're a kid, when I was a kid, I used to like holding my breath. I think I identified him a bit because I've always tested myself in small ways, you know, nothing like that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Again, just saying that it is genuine. He is showing that, you know, we our limits are much, uh, much further than we think, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, and you should test yourself a little bit. Yeah, that we can be pushed quite far and that we do have quite a lot in ourselves. I remember that after, well, when I was on holiday with my wife in Indonesia in, I don't know what year, it was a few years ago. And um, one of the things that we realised we could do on one of these islands was climb this mountain, Mount Rinjani, which is an active volcano on one of the Indonesian islands, Lombok. It was like, oh, it's going to be a three-day thing. We can do some camping while we're doing it. This sounds like it could be fun. It turned out to be a real ordeal, like a, a really, really hard thing to do climbing up in really hot weather the thing is covered in volcanic dust and so you kind of climb up you go two steps up and you slide down another step you know like what it's like climbing up a sand dune mm. so it was like that the thing is 3726 meters up to the peak we climbed all the way up to the top over about two and a half days it was 
a really, really, really difficult thing, like one of the most difficult things we've done. Mm. It's like a benchmark for the two of us. It's like, well, if you think this is difficult, remember we climbed Mount Rinjani, mm. so we can do this. Just climbing up the foothills was difficult. There was like, we call them the seven hills now, because mm. there were these seven horrible hills that you had to climb up. And even just to get to the beginning almost, mm. you get to the crater rim. And then from there, there's an, a climb up to the peak that you have to do first thing in the morning. Yeah, you kind of think, I'm exhausted, but then you keep going, you know, you just have to keep going. You, you try not to look all the way up to the top, you try not to see the whole climb, you just do it step by step, which is a thing I learned from doing that, that sometimes you have to just get your head down and focus on the next step, yeah. and if you can get the next step, you can then get the step after that, rather than trying to see the whole thing as one big challenge. Mm. And also, we learned that if you ask your body to do things, it will do it for you you know mm. you might think you're tired but you know you can keep going and there's your body has these extra reserves yeah so that was an interesting learning experience right mm. david blaine the ice one going back to the ice one again mm. one of the things that that struck me that i remember about that is that they had to cut him out of the ice mm. right i don't know if that was a again a dramatic ending that they planned in advance okay. it's hard to know isn't yeah. it but as you said like because he was sort of delusional at that point, through exhaustion, the cold of the ice and whatever, but he was hallucinating, he said, as they were using chainsaws to cut the ice open because he didn't know what was going on. He was trying to grab the yeah, the blade of the chainsaw and stuff. Yeah, that Rogan, the Rogan clip's very good, if you could uh, find that one. Yeah, he was properly losing the plot. Yeah, he went to grab yeah, well. it, apparently. But obviously, you know, he's got people around him. He's got three or four guys, and they understand that this could happen you know you can get in that state where you you're a bit confused yeah i yeah, think the ice bomb was yeah, the one yeah. he actually said he would never do again like under any circumstances i think that and the starvation probably were the the hardest ones i think the one on the pillar is mm -hmm. very difficult but he trained for a year you know that's the thing he did a lot of training he's very into physical yeah. training but i think the um the box one the starvation one i think he actually said that's messed up his metabolism forever really per forever. Permanently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not a good idea. I mean, they they say that fasting is, you know, can be healthy and mm. stuff like that. But uh, obviously what he did was so extreme. Yeah. You know, that's damaging. That's damaging to your body. One final thing about mm. David Blaine. Isn't there a Paul McCartney connection to this? <laughs> yeah. Isn't there a story where Paul McCartney was on a night out and he ended up going down to see David? Oh, just go down and see David Blaine yeah, yeah. in the box. Didn't Paul McCartney go and see him? Yeah. And he was either drunk or stoned. It was one of the two or maybe both. And he was going, what's that silly dude? Paul was being really, really belligerent, apparently. <laughs> and David Blaine, really? they asked David Blaine, and he said, oh, I, was, uh, I was asleep at the time, so I didn't see it. Yeah, but it's funny that it's so random, isn't it? Obviously, there were, there were quite a few celebs getting some photo opportunities there as well. But yeah, Paul was there. Interesting that Paul goes down, oh, David Blaine in a box, what's box? he doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay right so our next subject is that is uh, connected to what we've just talked about is the subject of food mm. i guess my question is do you watch what you eat do you have a particular diet i don't have a particular diet but yes i've been um conscious of food and uh how it affects your mental health as well for many years now i have a complicated relationship with food i always find that when i'm in control of my life I seem to be able to control my diet. Could be the other way around, in fact, really. <laughs> but um, when I'm not in control, when I'm stressed and everything, I find I just snack more and more. Probably the most interesting thing I could say about this is that 
in about 2010, I was living in Thailand and I put on a load of weight because I'd been back in England over Christmas enjoying myself. And I got back to yeah. Thailand and um, my girlfriend at the time, I think we were talking on part one when we were about having a really brutal sense of humor. She was like, oh, look at you, how fat you are now. <laughs> she just came out with that. Uh, Thank you, darling. <laughs> so I decided to do something about it and I got a load of uh, raw food audio books and podcasts and stuff and started binging them for about six months i went about 80 percent raw and i was also exercising because I, I lived right by a gym and me being me of course i had to take it one step further not only was i doing all that but i was emulating robert de niro and raging bull and was also uh, jogging in the steam room after my workout because you gotta go yeah, that's where he's like just give me just a little bit of ice just on the tongue yeah, just give me yeah. yeah yeah just thought i'd go the whole hog what I learned about food is that I, I learned quite a lot about the industry, and it's so horrifying if you really look at it properly, the food industry. The food industry. Yeah, yeah. what's being put in our food and stuff. I won't divulge too much here. As I was eating less, I was feeling less hungry, and I thought, hmm, that's not the way it's supposed to work, is it? So I started doing a bit of research, and I was researching, there's a thing called excitotoxins, which are things that basically they put in food, biscuits and crisps and things like that. That excites your nervous system, just makes you more hungry, you know. I mean, they make a joke of it, don't they? What was it? Pringles, you know, once you pop, you can't stop. I mean, there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. So rather than actually go on a diet, well, I suppose it was a diet, a raw food diet. I learned a hell of a lot. Since then, I wouldn't say my diet's perfect by any means. My weight has traditionally fluctuated up and down, but yeah. I think the thing about it is that we always focus on uh, physical weight, don't we? But I think yeah. food has a massive effect on your mental health as well. Yeah. Sugar, for yeah, example, sugar, yeah. they put sugar in lots of different food and that um, obviously gives you an instant sort of energy kick. Your body has an instant positive response to it. Then your body expects it. It's a sort of an addictive substance, isn't it, yeah, really? Absolutely. And you can you can be caught in, an, in a cycle of sort of addiction to sugar where even just you have your meal and then you have that feeling afterwards where you just feel like, oh, I need something sweet now. Hmm. That's something to be aware of, I suppose. People just want to do a little experiment and learn a bit more. Just have a look at products in your supermarket and just check the packets and see how much sugar there is in there. It's absolutely crazy. And I mean, just recently having this illness, I started drinking fruit juice. But after a while, I couldn't drink it because it's just too sugary. There's way more sugar. It's going up and up and up and up. And refined sugar really is the most addictive substance in the world, in my opinion. Everybody is basically addicted to it, whether they realize it or not. Everybody has a certain amount of refined sugar in their diet every single day. I mean, you can't help it unless you get proper organic food and things. So that's really something to, to bear in mind. There's simple sugar and there's refined sugar. And you like to think that in a, an apple or an orange, you're getting simple sugar that you need. But there's no way we need as much sugar as we have. It's not that necessary, yeah. but it's just highly addictive. And things like chocolate bars and, and hot dogs and hamburgers, they're genius creations of uh, addiction, basically. And it is addiction, yeah. let's call it that. We're all pretty much addicted to refined sugar, unless you make a really, nice. really massive effort. But I mean, it's just in everything, you know, it's in uh, carrots and bread and things like that, things that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, bread. I mean, when I go to the supermarket, 
Living in France, one of the advantages is that the boulangeries do sell pretty good bread. I mean, it's like homemade bread. You can get sort of like really good bread varieties using whole wheat and other types of cereals and stuff. And it's it's really good quality stuff. You know it is because after about 24 hours, it's gone hard mm. and you can't eat it anymore. Mm. Bread that I often find in the supermarkets in England... I'll go to the supermarket and I'm looking for nice bread and all the packets of bread, the sliced loaves, which are in plastic bags. You look at the, I'm searching through the ingredients, trying to find ones that don't have a lot of sugar in them because you can often find sugar in the ingredients list. They add that to add flavor to the bread and other things that will preserve the bread. Mm. Like that bread lasts all week. I mean, I don't really, I'm not an expert, of course, on nutrition and stuff like that, but it's a bit... It's suspicious. I, I feel a bit mm. suspicious when a loaf of bread that you've bought lasts all week and it doesn't start to go mouldy or, or start to go hard. Mm. Now, obviously, it's inconvenient when your bread, when you pull it out of the cupboard and it's got little bits of green mould in it and you've got to throw it away. Mm. But uh, if the bread does grow mould after a few days, that's, you know, or at least it goes hard or something after a few days, that's sort of normal. That's what bread should do, really. Mm. But when it's not and it stays fresh for ages, then, yeah, they've probably done something funny to it, which keeps it fresh, you know, preservatives. Yeah, there's an experiment. Um, do you remember the guy who ate McDonald's for a month? I think his name's Morgan Spurlock. Morgan Spurlock, yeah, that film, uh, Super Size Me. I used to use that in uh, English lessons yeah, sometimes. Too, yeah. Yeah. I built some English uh, learning materials from it, and I remember doing a few classes where we would do maybe the morning session would be about that and it's like discussion language work listening comprehension mm. everyone is is can relate to the subject of mcdonald's and stuff mm. like that and yeah the story talks about how he the, the documentary is that he chooses to eat mcdonald's as a challenge he eats three meals a day all from mcdonald's for a long time and then we see what happens to his body and it's quite horrific really but then every single time i did that lesson we'd stop for lunch and after lunch, I'd say to everyone, right, did you have a nice lunch? And I'd say, who had McDonald's? And loads of them would say, oh, yeah, we went to McDonald's because I don't know what it is about McDonald's and the marketing of it. Just looking at the products, looking at the name and looking at the logo and stuff made people want to go and eat it, yeah. even though the documentary showed what it did to his health. Yeah, right. But yes, Morgan Spurlock, Super Size Me. Yeah, yeah what were you we did say an experiment. There's a, it's on YouTube, I think. There's a video where he, he kept... Um, I think it was a, a burger from a burger shop and then a McDonald's burger and then chips from a proper chip shop and then McDonald's French fries. And he kept them all under a, a plastic container and he was checking on them. He left them in room temperature in his office and he was checking yeah. on them every two weeks. And obviously there was a, you know, he was, the way he delivered it was quite comedic. And he said, oh, let's have a look after two weeks. And there was mold growing off the proper burger. And I won't go into the details, but by, um, it was something like four weeks, maybe even six weeks. The kicker was that the McDonald's French fries had not altered at all. Like, not not <laughs> at all. They looked exactly the same. Presumably, you could have eaten them. That is quite scary if you think about it. Yeah, I used to joke with my friends that McDonald's, that in the back of the McDonald's, they just had these tubs of stuff, and they would just pour this stuff into machines and then pull different levers mm. and different products would come out it's just like this mcdonald's matter that mm. they would pour into like the mcdonald's machine and then kachung milkshake yeah kachung french fries kachung burger obviously they say in mcdonald's that it's made from 100 percent beef their burgers are made from 100 percent beef all right but what part 
doesn't say what they did to the cow before they turned it into the burger and which parts of the cow they're using. There's another famous clip of um, Jamie Oliver. He did a thing called Jamie's School Dinners in England. There's a famous clip where he's um, explaining to kids, again, I haven't checked this, I'll take him at his word, how nuggets are made. So he has this um, raw chicken. He says, right, what bits of a chicken can you eat? So they say breasts, the legs, etc. the meat, yeah. So he cuts those off, and all he's got left is this uh, horrible uh, carcass. Then he explains how they make it, and they stick it in a blender, and then they, you know, get softened. They make it into patties. They add all the flavorings to make it smell nice, and then deep fry it, and that's how you get nuggets, apparently. And all the children are going, you know, but of course at the end he says, is anyone going to stop eating nuggets? And they're like, no, no, because he said that it's not because they're stupid, it's because it's the pull of it. I mean, I stopped eating McDonald's and Burger King years and years ago. And uh, all it takes is just to stop for a bit. And uh, I'm sure you wouldn't miss it that much. Yeah. But they're very clever. You know, they, they just happen to be in the right place at the right time, McDonald's. Maybe you've been out, you might have had a beer or two, and uh, you're hungry, and there's nowhere else to get food. And, oh, of course, there's a McDonald's within walking distance. In fact, it's on the way home. I'll just pop in. It's open. It's really easy to, to get food from there. You don't even need to even to interact with a person. You know, you just press a few buttons on the screen and then someone hands it over to you. So, yeah, they've kind of arranged things to make us keep going back. Oh, yeah, it's very um, clever, but uh, it's pretty evil as well, really. The food industry, like I say, it depends how deeply you want to look into it. Probably wouldn't recommend people go too deep. It's frightening, really frightening. There you go, listeners. <laughs> Little advert there for never eat again. McDonald's. Mm. Other fast food restaurants are available. <laughs> yeah. Let's move from talking about food to talking about films. Mm. Now, uh, I'm not going to ask you what's your favourite film. Well, I already know as well, but mm. that's one of those questions that's actually really difficult to answer. But what are some of your favourite films? Shall I just say what my favourite film is well, anyway? I do have a flick chart, actually. I filled it in. I'm pretty confident I've got every film I've ever watched on it now. And let's have a look at the total, 1,529, not bad. Yes, Raging Bull is at the top. It's a Martin Scorsese film from 1980 with Robert De Niro that I mentioned earlier, related to boxing. But uh, that period of films, uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls period, as it's called by some people. The late 60s through to the late 70s, basically, mm. right? Uh, sort of American cinema from that period. We think of films by Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola. Mm. Who else? Well, Spielberg's in there, George Lucas, Brian De Palma, those kind of people. Now, I've got in my list, actually, The Shining, because you've talked about The Shining mm-hmm. quite a lot before. Mm-hmm. And The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick, actually 1980, isn't mm-hmm. it? Jack Nicholson is the star of the film. It's the story of a writer who goes to stay in a, an unoccupied hotel mm-hmm. somewhere in the United States, some amazing mountainous area of, is it like Colorado, Colorado or something? Colorado, yeah, yeah. He stays in the hotel, which is basically unoccupied because it's off season. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's there with his family, his wife and his young son, and he goes there to write. But then he kind of slowly goes mad mm-hmm. in this huge hotel. So much has been said and written about The Shining. It's based on a, a novel by Stephen King, although it's quite different to the novel, I understand. Yeah, right. So what it, what's so special about The Shining, do you think? Uh, I mean, The Shining's never been one of my really favourite films. I, I can admire it quite a bit. And I forgot to mention Kubrick. I mean, he was involved in that 70s period, although obviously he came from an earlier period, but he was still around, you know, he was doing Clockwork Orange and Shining and so forth. 
my interest was piqued by our mutual friend uh, Rob Ager, who's become a, kind yeah. of a mate of mine now. And in fact, I stayed over at his his house last summer in Liverpool. Nice, I had a fun time. Yeah, he started doing these videos in about two thousand and eight or nine, talking about things like how the rooms didn't properly match up. The rooms of the, the hotel. rooms of the hotel didn't match up, and so because you see a fair amount of the hotel at the beginning when. Uh, Jack and his wife are being shown around by the, the manager. And then later on, obviously, you know, they're stuck in this hotel, so they're moving around it quite a bit. He pointed that out, and then he pointed out that there was a gold connection, which is related to the history of gold in America. And then there may even be a, a, something related to the Native American uh, genocide as well, because they say at the beginning that the, the hotel was built on Indian burial ground. There's music, there's certain artwork on the walls. I think for me, it became perhaps more interesting than watching the film itself. I haven't watched the film through actually for years. It's a puzzle. You know, I like, I quite like these cavernous buildings, really labyrinthine. And, uh, I think it was the mystery element of uh, what's actually going on. You know, I've always been attracted to that or what's really going on behind closed doors, you know. People say that there are lots of hidden meanings mm. in it, or meanings which are not that obvious, but which, if you, when you look very carefully, Kubrick has intentionally put little symbolic things in, which mean that the film is actually about something much larger or something else. And some mm. people have said, yeah, it's about the story of the Native Americans and how they were treated in the United States, or that it's about the moon landing. Mm or that it's about other things, that it's something about the history of gold in America, mm. as you just mentioned. Mm. Yeah, I'm a bit rusty on the details, to be honest. Yeah, There's yeah, so many yeah. videos. I'd go to Rob's ones first, basically, because he's pretty solid yeah. all the way. And also, of course, it's, it's just remarkably creepy, the two twins. And uh, the story doesn't really make any sense at all. If you watch the film, there are things that happen. You think, well, how, how could that possibly happen? And then you put it down to ghosts and you say, well, okay. Is any of it real? You know, is Jack Torrance real even? So it's not really a puzzle that you could uh, complete. But uh, there's a, a definite, uh, there's such a creepy vibe about it. It always made me think, actually, when I stay in a hotel, you know, if you stay in a hotel room, you think, how many people have stayed in this room before? Could be anybody yeah. stayed in this room before this. There's a whole history to a hotel. And I think that's the fascination. And, you know, like I said, these cavernous rooms and these corridors and everything. And of course, without giving the ending away too much, they do this fabulous trick with a with a photo, don't they, from the past, yeah. which proves that maybe Jack Torrance has always been there. I, I like the way they use jaunty 1940s, you know, midnight. Da, 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 da. I always find that very sinister. If you play this sort of jaunty 40s music in the right atmosphere. Yeah, sinister juxtaposition. Yeah, I mean, you know, simply as a work of film direction, it's incredibly clever the way he creates this atmosphere where things just don't feel right. Mm. And Kubrick was very meticulous as a director. And so all of those things were probably intentional. Like, as you say, the design of the hotel mm. that you see, there are quite a lot of establishing shots of the hotel or moments where we see the hotel and we get to know the layout of the hotel to some extent. Mm. And then there are some moments where we follow the characters as they walk through the corridors and you realise that they, you know they enter a room that has a window with light shining through it and you realise, wait a minute, it's not possible for there to be a window that shines light in 
from this position. And you might not realize it when you first watch it, but it does give you a sense of unease and a sense of things being quite strange and weird. Mm. So all of these little touches, yeah, have led people to interpret the film in all sorts of different ways. I watched that documentary with my brother recently called Room 237. It's quite a famous documentary. A lot of other, a lot of people say that it's nonsense, those ideas, and they will posit other interpretations of the film instead. But it's just interesting that there's such wildly different interpretations of what the film means. You know, it's fascinating. Well, it's yeah. an interesting microcosm of maybe something we'll talk about later, which is alternative theories and conspiracy theories. In that world, I know pretty well, I guess it's just a mixture of credible ones and, and ridiculous ones. Let's go on to talk about that. That's that's the next item on my list, which is conspiracy theories. Mm. Well, I think most people listening will know what a conspiracy theory is. Most people understand the term to mean basically the idea that, oh, it's hard, hard to define it. Well, just the idea that two or more people have got together in a secret way and planned something. I'd like to just talk briefly about the history of it because I think it's important. See, I prefer the term alternative explanation because it doesn't come so loaded. If you take an example that everyone can get on board with, which is the killing of uh, John F. Kennedy in November 1963, I don't know what the latest figures are, but definitely the majority of Americans believe that there is a, there is at least something else going on, that Lee Harvey Oswald yeah. didn't act alone. So a conspiracy could have been between uh, the mafia, could have been between his political enemies, could be various people, because it was a very, very strange time in the early 60s, but it's always a strange time in politics. But yeah, it's the idea that the official story that we're given may not be uh, everything we need to know or anything we need to know, in fact. Yeah, the official story of that being that um, Lee Harvey Oswald was the only gunman mm. and that from the window of the book depository building, he uh, managed to assassinate President Kennedy. Mm. And the reasons given what, what in, the main, in the official version of that story, what are the reasons given for him doing it? Oh, again, this is, this is so complicated, but... <laughs> I mean, he may have been a communist or a communist sympathiser. Would it be really a political assassination? He didn't really have a chance to give a clear motive because, of course, he was killed himself live on television. I don't know if anyone's actually come up with a really good motive for Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, he, we know he defected to Russia, but then JFK was supposed to be soft on, they always call it soft on communism when you're trying to build a decent relationship with the USSR. Generally speaking, the understanding is that Lee Harvey Oswald was a communist, mm an enemy of America working with the Soviets Mm. and that he had become an agent of the Soviets. So it was basically America's enemies killing the president, Mm. right? But maybe the alternative ideas suggest that it could have been an inside job, that maybe there were forces inside the United States Mm. who disagreed with JFK and the direction he was taking with the country and that, in fact, they're the ones who killed him. Yeah, there's a big debate about whether JFK was anti-Vietnam or anti-American involvement in Vietnam, that he was trying to pull them out. I've listened to debates, and I mean, there's people arguing passionately on both sides. Can I just talk about the uh, the term itself? Because I, I think, yeah, I think yeah. this is really the salient point. Okay, if you take, a, let's take the pre-JFK assassination, let's say we're in the 50s or whatever. The term conspiracy theory was in use. And it seems like people would talk about things like that. Say Americans, for example, would talk about, oh, who really killed uh, Abraham Lincoln? You know, was it John Wilkes Booth? What was the American Civil War really about? And people used to be able to talk about this, you know, maybe over coffee and brandy or whatever it was after dinner. 
And those are the kind of discussions that, I mean, I don't really have them anymore, but I used to have those with friends as well. And there was no stigma involved. It was just, oh, that's curious. I wonder if that was that or that wasn't that, you know. Mm. But what happened was after JFK was killed, and there was clearly very quickly a backlash, even before we saw the, the famous Sapruda film, which didn't, wasn't seen until the mid-70s, what happened was that there's a CIA document that I read uh, years ago, and it was to do with using the phrase conspiracy theorist as a pejorative, a kind of an accusation. Yeah. To say that someone who thinks like that is a bit unhinged. Yeah, a mad person who wears a tinfoil tin hat. hat. Yeah, so all, the, all these stereotypes were created and everything. And we do know there's a thing called Operation Mockingbird, which again is a What's thing. That? It's not a theory. It was a, a CIA operation in that they planted operatives into the media to plant trigger words and to weave newspapers towards stories that were going to shape the world the way that the CIA wanted to, to shape it. And that's not that's not just a theory or a speculation. No, that, that's provable. That's a real thing, mm-hmm. Operation Mockingbird. And, um, yeah, to cut a long story short, so this thing was entirely created whereby someone becomes a conspiracy theorist and just becomes a person who, with no evidence at all, is just looking for conspiracies. And then there's all these, been all these academic papers. And I had a discussion with a guy on Life and Life Only who'd been involved with a paper that said that people who believe conspiracy theories have had insecure attachments as a child. Of course, the big question comes, well, maybe if I believe that, maybe I'm, I've got an insecure attachment as a child, or maybe I did some research and found that a lot of it was true. <laughs> that, you know, that's a bit of a radical idea. Anyway, so th- this has just carried on and on and on. And the problem is, it's like anything. When you hear intelligent people on TV ridiculing it and talking about tinfoil hats and things, it suddenly has a lot of credibility, but it, it's just been planted deliberately in the culture. And I've had conversations with people where we're talking about something and I present a bit of evidence and they're fairly open-minded and they kind of go with it. Let's say about 9-11, okay? I mean, I don't think 9-11 was necessarily an inside job, but there's no way if you research more than half an hour that you're not going to think there's something at least slightly strange, you know, and there's 40 or 50 anomalies that build up. Anyway, you could be having a discussion with somebody and then as soon as you reach the point where they think, oh, yeah, maybe he's talking about conspiracy, they sort of shy away. I've had this so many times where they get a little smirk on their face and suddenly it's a place that you can't go. So what's happened is this phrase has been used to brilliantly shut down debates. It's like almost having an allergic reaction. That's why I think mm. it's been planted because it's created a reaction in people. So really my, my angle is not about JFK or Princess Diana. I mean, if you want one that just seems like a slam dunk to me, the death of uh, David Kelly, the weapons inspector, 2003. Right. So we need a bit of context for that. Yeah. 2003, the USA and the UK and probably some other countries, I can't remember exactly which ones, decided to, how shall I put it, invade Iraq and uh, remove Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. And they presented it as a way to prevent uh, terrorism. And they said that there was evidence that in Iraq they had access to weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. And so we need to go in and we've done it. We've got the intelligence reports. They do have weapons of mass destruction. So we're going to go in and do the right thing. Mm. That's the kind of context. And David Kelly was an expert, a weapons inspector. inspector. There was a big scandal with uh, this uh, sexed up dossier. I think it was the 45 minute claim, wasn't it? That Saddam... uh, 
could uh, blow up the world in 45 minutes, essentially. A bit sketchy on the details, unfortunately. And uh, he was under a lot of pressure, and then suddenly he was found uh, dead in the woods. And he'd actually taken an overdose and cut his wrists as well. And there's a whole uh, whole story to it, but it was interesting to see in real time something like that happening because we we don't know what it was like when Joseph Kennedy was killed, but that was one that was happening in real time. And the way that it just, because of the news cycle, it's a story for a while, but then the news cycle moves on so quickly that it gets forgotten. But uh, what happened was there was, I think it was a Liberal MP, Norman Baker, started his own investigation. And um, I haven't read his book, but I've heard on good authority. It's a good book. He found that he almost certainly didn't kill himself, that something else happened. A friend of mine posted a clip around the time on his podcast, or it must have been a few years later, of these people on uh, BBC radio. And it's just the smugness of this guy's tone. He was going, oh, yeah, conspiracy theorist. When you listen mm-hmm. to the tone of these people and how dismissive they are, you have to marvel at what a well-created phrase it is to just mm-hmm. shut down debate. Because it's just so yeah. easy, isn't it? 19 minutes to nine. Of all the reshufflees yesterday, the most eyebrow-raising, jaw-dropping even, was Norman Baker, the Lib Dem MP, was moved from a post of transport to the Home Office. Why were eyebrows raised? Because Norman Baker has taken a rather conspiratorial view of one or two security matters. He wrote a book called The Strange Death of David Kelly, uh, the government scientist who sadly, sadly took his life after being exposed as a source of suggestions that government had sexed up a dossier on Iraq. Norman Baker suggested he may have been murdered. Here he is talking to Andrew Marr about the case in 2007. He had been told by a a friend who was senior in the security services uh, that this was a, quote, wet disposal. Uh, And what what was wet disposal, I asked him. Wet disposal means that uh, it was a hurried job and he was killed in a hurried way. That's apparently what wet disposal means. Actually, that wasn't from him talking to Andrew Marr. That was actually from a programme called The Conspiracy Files. Let's talk to two political commentators about that. John Rental is a chief political commentator for The Independent on Sunday, and Mark Pack is with us, editor of Liberal Democrat Newswire. Morning to you both. Morning. Good morning. Um, Mark Pack, some have suggested this damages Liberal Democrat credibility, does it, or...? I think not at all, because Norman Baker has got a very good record, very impressive record as a minister in the Department of Transport. It's also true he's got some uh, slightly curious, eccentric maybe even, views about the death of David Kelly. But I think what for me is really important is that that is sort of the exception. It's not that he's out there every day, you know, saying there are aliens hidden in the gardens and Buckingham Palace or anything like that. There's one particular issue where he's been hugely sceptical about the official government line. He sort of put a lot of David effort himself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. put a lot of effort into digging up information. And actually that scepticism, I think, will be very beneficial in the Home Office. Mm. John Rental. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't take that seriously. <laughs> I mean, th- this is someone who, who has taken a year out to, to write a book uh, about <clears throat> a theory which is so outlandish and so ridiculous that nobody can take it seriously. And to suggest that this isn't going to affect his job as a minister, he's not going to be taken seriously by the Home Secretary, who I understand is absolutely furious about his appointment, and the idea that uh, Home Office officials are going to give him the time of day beyond, um, you know, good morning and uh, thank you very much. I know, uh, John, you had written a little about his views of the death of Robin Cook as well. 
well. And I think you had to post an apology to him for that. I apologised for briefly taking him seriously because uh, he did suggest that uh, Robin Cook's death was suspicious because it happened on Ministry of Defence land. He then emailed me to, to say, oh, no, I wasn't uh, suggesting that he'd been murdered. And then I discovered, because I haven't actually read his ridiculous book about David Kelly because I don't read books, I don't waste my time on books about UFOs or JFK, but David Aronovich has written an excellent book on conspiracy theories and has read it for us doing a, a sterling public service and discovers that in that book he also suggests that Robin Cook, there was something suspicious about the death of Robin Cook. I mean, this is not a man who should be in public office. Mm. But I think that's not... If, I mean, in fact, John, if you look at your own sort of apology for your apology that you wrote, actually the words that David Aronovich picked up on were completely innocuous words uh, that <laughs> well, Norman Baker written out, about that the death had happened shortly after, you know, another event. And that was just simply a little no, bit the, of the, chronology no, Mark, in there. There was, the, no, is, there was no, Mark, no allegation Mark, there, this is the way that conspiracy theorists work. They suggest, oh, no, I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting that. I was, I was merely asking questions. This is absolutely not well, the way that serious say, people should do business. I should say we did invite him to come on the program he didn't didn't particularly want to today but mark in terms of how his relations work with uh, theresa may it, it's going to be terribly frosty isn't it? it's not just because he's a liberal and she perhaps isn't it's much more to do with the wackiness of his views on a well couple i, of I think there are many ways of assessing home office ministers but it is also clever in this in the sense that to an extent there are certain we all have seen videos or heard people talking about ideas so there are some people who clearly just seem to make stuff up oh yeah sure and they've just they've decided that things are not as they seem Mm. and then they seem to just pluck evidence out of nowhere and these sort of people who you just see even conversations on the joe rogan podcast with certain guests that he has Mm. And they're talking about chemtrails or they're talking about the moon landings or whatever. And these people just say, oh, they did this. They're doing this. And they're just pulling this stuff out of nowhere. They're essentially just speculating and then deciding that those speculations are real, you know. And there's kind of like good alternative approaches to seeing things and kind of other side, which is people who have absolutely no rigor or no method, no commitment to a proper process of using evidence and all the rest of it. And those are the examples that people have in their minds when they hear the term conspiracy theory. They think about a nutter who is just making it all up on their own Mm. and just creative thinking. And people will say that these people just, they they actually, it's wishful thinking Mm. that these people want there to be someone controlling it all out of some desire to be living in a world in which is under control, you know, that they want to imagine that the world is under someone's control and that it's not all just sort of random or something. So there's those sorts of people who have those sorts of ideas and present their ideas in that kind of way. And they sort of spoil it for everyone else in a way. You know, another example is the Paul is dead conspiracy or the, you know, people saying that Paul McCartney died in 1966 and he was replaced by a body double because... The establishment decided that if the world lost the Beatles, it would be too bad for the economy and that lots of teenagers would be devastated. And, you know, so they decided to keep the whole thing going, you know, with a body double. I mean, you know, I think it's ridiculous. And I've thought about it and considered it quite a lot, I think, and considered the evidence that I've seen in some of those videos that have been presented. And it becomes very irritating where you, you'll be looking at Beatles videos or interviews with Paul, and there's always people in the comments saying, oh, this is the fake Paul, this is Paul. Or, and it's just like, oh, this is so annoying, you know? Mm. So there's that category of 
nonsense. But yeah, that has been used. The term has been used to kind of lump in those people, maybe with people who have perhaps more reasonable alternative approaches. Yeah, researchers. You know? Yeah, researchers, people who actually use the right methods. Mm. So it's all been mixed in together. So, yeah, that's, again, why conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist is such a powerful term, mm. is because you say that and instantly people just imagine that we're talking about these people who've got no method at all. Yeah, I want to make mm. it clear, I agree with you. Yeah, there are people out there who do chase conspiracy theories and make them up. I wasn't saying that they were all uh, credible. I'm just saying, like, mm. as you said, mm. they'd be lumped in. And there's no middle ground. You know, there are people who basically believe uh, mainstream news, probably scan it for 10 minutes a day. Then on the very, very other extreme, you've got people who just think it's all lies. But then there is this space in the middle and there are credible researchers, a couple of whom I've yeah. talked to on my podcast even. You know. For me, the danger is that people who just reject it all, they're being kept innocent, really, in a way, and not being encouraged to look at things for themselves. Because if you just if you can just dismiss everything you don't see on mainstream news as a conspiracy theory, you're basically saying in your mind, oh, well, they're telling me everything I need to know. I don't need to do any work myself. Mm. Whereas I think yeah. people should be working hard. <laughs> I know we're working hard anyway with other things, but I think yeah. people should put in the work to uh, nuance their worldview and check different sources and things like that. Interesting stuff. I had a conversation with some flat earth guys. Mm once on their podcast that was an interesting experience mm. just because it's not every day that you get the chance to talk to some guys who think the earth is flat it was really interesting they didn't convince me but you start to get down to a level where you're talking about mathematical formulas and how do you actually prove that the earth is round mm. in a just a one-to-one -one conversation it becomes a philosophical discussion and it becomes very hard to actually prove it just using my, my layperson's knowledge to lay the evidence out to them in a way that could actually convince them. Mm. They tried the same thing with me and they, they didn't succeed. Mm. But ultimately, yeah, it does, to an extent, come down to how you choose to, to see the world. They had chosen, they had decided that the earth was flat. That's the thing I wish I'd said to them. Because their podcast is called the Flat Earth Podcast. But they're always saying that they're on a mission to talk about the truth. Mm. And in my opinion, their approach was, right, the earth is flat. Let's find ways to concoct evidence or concoct theories to prove that, that the earth is flat rather than let's just find out what the shape of the earth is. You know, are you interested in searching for the real shape of the earth? You know, are you really interested in searching for the truth? And of course, I think they would have said yes. Mm. And then my killer blow would have been, so why is the show called The Flat Earth Podcast? Yeah. It seems to me that you've decided it's flat, and now you're just finding ways to back that up. And some of the ways that they'd chosen, they were just literally pulling every single possible thing they could that would prove that the Earth was flat. And a lot of these things they were pulling in were completely contradictory and incongruous with each other mm. and not backed up. Anyway, it was very interesting. That's quite a stream um, example, though, isn't it, Flat Earth? Yeah, again, and now that's on the sort of that side that I was talking mm. about before. But Flat Earth is, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because you kind of think, why is it that people have decided that the Earth is flat? I don't know, why do you think? I mean, they could be planted, you know. I think these things mm -hmm. are put in there just to discredit the whole deal. But there are wacky people out there. I think in every, in every walk of life, you get people who are seeking attention, people who are hoping someone else will tell them what's what. 
and then people who like to try and find things out for themselves. So like I say, I mean, you, if you look at the news, it's a bit like the food industry. It's, it's how far you want to go into it. You, know, you can mm. skim the surface and have a quick look at what's in the packet and then buy it. Same with the news. You can, have, you can have a quick look at the headlines and say, oh, that happened, that happened, that happened. Oh, I'm basically informed. Or you can go deeper. But you're, you're always in everything, you're always going to get different types of people. This is just a reflection of it, really. Yeah. But uh, yeah. there's so yeah. many credible alternative researchers out there. And there's so much more to know. The idea that in this unbelievably complex world where stuff is happening every single second, 24 hours a day, with obviously different time zones and things, the idea that you could just turn on the TV and watch a news bulletin and think, oh, well, they've just picked everything I need to know for my own good. That's fine. Yeah, that seems as absurd as saying everything is a lie. You know, it's, the truth yeah. is obviously somewhere in the middle. Mm. I just encourage people to seek stuff out for themselves, really. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to a perhaps lighter topic, mm. and that's comedy. Mm. Quite a harsh right turn or left turn here <laughs> from one topic to the next. But comedy, it's something I like to talk about on my podcast quite a lot because I'm a huge fan of comedy and I, I think you are too. Mm. So the question I have for you here is simply, well, it's another what's your favourite. Mm. But at the moment, what comes to mind as one of your favourite comedy shows? Well, you know what's coming here. You just teed this up, haven't you? Let's be honest. Do I? <laughs> Do I? Because either you're going to talk about Alan Partridge... <laughs> Or you're going to talk about Yes Minister. Oh, yes, um, yes, yes. So it could be one of the two, but I think probably you're thinking of Alan Partridge right now. Well, my, my favourite comedy show is Britain has come up with some great sitcoms, but probably the top tier, not a huge surprise, I suppose, would yeah, would be Alan. Probably on balance, I'd say series one of I'm Alan Partridge is probably still the best thing he's ever done. I like the old ones like Faulty Towers. It's still good, but it's... Uh, it's a phrase that people don't like much, but it's a, it hasn't aged. I, I don't mean in a woke sense. I'm just talking about the, the jokes because we've, humor's got a bit more edge nowadays. I meant it in that sense. Yeah, I think there was a sweet spot in the 90s. I mean, I, I love things like Absolutely Fabulous. And it wasn't yeah. that there were any great lines or any, well, I suppose there were great lines or great stories. It was just something about the atmosphere of it. I liked One Foot in the Grave because the thing about that was it wasn't about an old guy complaining. It was about how mad normal life is, suburban life, and how many strange things yeah. are going on all around you. But yeah, the top yeah. tier probably Blackadder, Early Falls Norses, Yes Minister, and Alan, and obviously The Office as well. Yeah, Blackadder, the one, the one with Rowan Atkinson, who plays a character. There's different series. Each series is in a different historical period, and essentially Blackadder is a normal person mm. sort of stuck in in a historical period, mm. and he's very cynical and self-interested he wants to basically get as much power and money as he can mm. he's stuck within the historical context yes. brilliant and all the other characters around him are idiots idiots from history only fools and horses yeah is like two working class brothers mm. and it's a lot of it's about class working class life mm. and whether you know you can ever become middle class if you're if you're working class and things like that what were the other ones Yes, Minister Alan Partridge and The Office, I suppose, that would be my top one. Right, right, okay. I feel slightly reluctant to start talking about Alan Partridge mm. now because it's like a thing that you, we can never resolve. He's such a fascinating, multi-dimensional character. What's your favourite Alan Partridge moment or something that happens to Alan that you like? Oh, man, so many. 
Listeners, just in case you don't know who we're talking about, I have done episodes about Alan Partridge before. Some of you will remember I did six episodes about Alan Partridge. He's a comedy character. He's played by Steve Coogan, a brilliant actor, comedian. This fictional character, basically, he used to be a sports presenter on a fictional news programme called The Day to Day. And then he was such a great character that they decided to make more shows with him. And Steve Coogan plays him so convincingly they decided there was a lot more they could do with the character. So they they decided they would make a show about his everyday life. This became the show called I'm Alan Partridge. And we see him, his wife has left him. She's thrown him out of the house. He's living in a sort of roadside travel tavern Mm. or a hotel, a motel by the side of the road. He's struggling to get a second series of his television show Mm. after his first one ended in catastrophe. And when he shot a man dead live on television, (laughs) accidentally killed someone on TV. That's not funny, but somehow when Alan does it, it is. uh, It's part of the mystery of Alan Partridge that he can do these terrible, terrible things. And it's just brilliant comedy. And so he's, yeah, he's kind of lost in his life and he's struggling to become relevant again. He desperately wants to have a second series on the BBC, but no no one's interested. And uh, this is basically like a, a TV presenter who thinks he's a sort of a, a D grade broadcaster mm. who thinks he's an A grade broadcaster. Yeah, basically, yeah. He doesn't know, he doesn't realise who he is. He thinks he's a lot bigger and better than he actually is. And he's kind of willing to do anything to be that mm. A grade broadcaster. And he's selfish and horrible. But also somehow strangely sympathetic as a character. Like mm. we, we relate to him and we, we're compelled by him. And we, I, I like Alan, actually, more and more. Yeah, he's I don't loosened know if that means up. I'm getting older. No, he's loosened up. That's the thing. Around 2010, where they rebooted it, where it seemed like it might be the end of it. But I was thinking about this. Why is it so good? And obviously, it's the lines and the acting and everything. But I think the thing is, if he was just stupid, maybe it wouldn't be that funny. But I listened to uh, Coogan and Amando Iannucci doing the commentary of, over I'm Anna Partridge Series 1. And at some point, they said, the thing about it is that Alan has got talent. You know, he can, he can go in front of a radio mic and talk, even if it's total bollocks. Yeah. He has got the ability to talk. And also, he's quite quick-witted as well. So when someone tries to stitch him up or ridicule him, occasionally he can turn the tables. And I think if he wasn't talented a little bit, then it wouldn't work as well. It's yeah. the same with if you think of The Office. David Brent's an idiot, yeah, but he has got quite a lot of good lines and funny comedic references that obviously Ricky Gervais introduced in there. Yeah, both David Brent from The Office and Alan Partridge, yeah, they're people who... If you spent, let's say, 15 to 20 minutes in their company, you might think they were brilliant and great. Mm. You might think David Brent was a really inspirational manager Mm. who had created a really good atmosphere in the office. And he was like, you know, a really nice, reasonable person who cares about the good vibes in the in the office and stuff. But if you spend more time, you realize that he's like he just wants people's attention he just wants people mm. to like him. Mm. He's actually a really bad manager. Mm. He doesn't help the business operate well. He just is an attention seeker. And it's a similar thing with Partridge. You could spend 20 minutes in his company. I'd, I'd like to have a pint, one pint, mm. with Alan Partridge. But after that, it, it would be too much. And if you got into a friendship with him, at some point he would betray you. He'd stab you in the back. He'd do something to destroy... You know, he would betray the friendship in some way and you'd regret being his friend eventually. I could maybe go for a walk with him. Mm. Then I'd be like, all right, that's enough Alan for, for a while, you know? Yeah, it's a bit too much after a while, yeah. There was one moment, actually, that I wanted to mention. 
because it's partly linked with something that we've talked about with meditation. But it's more mm. of a relaxation tape. It's in, from Adam Anapartri's series one. He decides he, you know, he wants to relax and he's made his own relaxation tape and he's going to listen back to it. You know, and it's all stuff like, imagine you're on a beach. And the bit I remember is going, imagine the waves licking at your feet. And you, you get so much character insight. It's a number one that Alan can't relax because he keeps getting up and straightening his shoes and things like that. And, uh, yeah, and he, like, he can't relax because the things aren't quite right in the room. He's lying down. He's stressed out. He's having a bad moment in his day and he's decided he's going to try and relax and so he plays his own meditation yeah. tape uh, <laughs> but even that doesn't work because as you say like he's not satisfied because you know the the fact his shoes aren't straight on the floor he has to get up quickly and straighten the shoes and then he has to get up and straighten the curtain and, and these yeah. things yeah but the moment yeah. the moment is when he he just finally goes oh shut up and just turns the tape off but it's Alan getting an insight into what Alan's actually like. He's Alan being annoyed by himself. I thought that was a good, yeah. that was a really good choice. Welcome to tape two of Let Go with Alan Partridge. A sequence of easy exercises to relieve stress enhanced by the tropical music of the pan pipes. First, find a quiet place to recline, a bed or a big chair. I want you to imagine you're lying on the beach, divested of all the trappings of the 20th century. No mobile phone, batteries out of your pager. You're all alone, the waves gently licking at your feet. Your bark trunk soaking up the water like a sponge. Your head loosens from the torso and bobs into the distance. Remember the breathing techniques from tape one. Please relax, I can't emphasize that enough. All of us experience stress, whether you're a heart surgeon making vital incisions, just Dave Bloggs queuing for a rail ticket behind a man who's buying a travel pass, which involves photographs, scissors, forms being filled in, and his access won't wipe. You, you get the picture. But stress like this just won't go away, and it has to be combated. Sod off. Uh, fascinating character. Really fascinating, yeah. We'll do something about it. Definitely. Yeah, we should do. And then Yes Minister yeah. really just circling back to what we were saying earlier, really, it just shows you how everyone does conspire in Westminster. Yeah, the show is called Yes Minister. Mm. It's from the 1980s or 70s. Yeah, like 70s it? to mid-80s, yeah, because it was Yes Prime yeah. Minister as well, so he became Prime Minister. Right, it's a comedy show about uh, a member of parliament, uh, a minister in, in the government, and you get to see life in Westminster. And the main characters are the, the MP... And his permanent secretary, top civil, civil servant, mm. we see who is actually in control of who. The civil servant seems to be the one who's actually in control. Mm. But yeah, as you say, it actually shows us what really goes on mm. in government. It seems to have sort of went over everybody's head. You know, they just said, oh, oh, that's a fun comedy. And even the writers are saying, oh, we had um, advisors who were real politicians. It's a lot to go into. But I did a show about that. It's one of yeah. my back episodes. So I was quite pleased with Listeners, you should listen to, the, to those Yes Minister episodes because, yes, it's just very interesting. First of all, it, it tells you lots of things about the show, mm. and it's a great show. You can find lots of those episodes on, online. Mm. And so it's a good introduction to the show if you're looking for an interesting bit of British comedy to, to watch that's really well written, then that's a good one. But also, yeah, there's wider things that it shows us about the way that government works. Mm. And this comedy show, it's interesting that the comedy can reveal the truth, but it somehow... Because it's comedy, 
unsurprisingly, people don't take it seriously. But a comedy show can, a satire like that can just really lay things bare and show us really what's going on. But it didn't seem to make that many changes because it's comedy. Yeah, and of course, because the people that were responsible for it, yeah, they are really part of the establishment. And I don't think they... There's a funny thing that happens. If you take um, a show like Have I Got News For You or a, a newspaper called Private Eye, both of which involve Ian Islop, he obviously knows what's going on or a lot of what's going on and that it's not what we're being told. But then he will put people with tinfoil hats in, in Private Eye. They can't make that divide because maybe they don't really want anything to change. So you have to wonder about their motives for making the show. But I suppose they're just looking to make a successful comedy show on one level. But uh, I think you can learn a lot from that show, definitely. Absolutely. Okay. Finally, Anthony, really big, heavy question (laughs) at the end for this lighthearted conversation that we're having. The final topic that you talk about sometimes is happiness. Or in fact, you've done, you did a couple of episodes, I think, called The Art of Happiness. Yeah, three-parter, in fact, yes. Three-part episode called The Art of Happiness. Right, what's the art of happiness then, Anthony? Because <laughs> you're obviously so happy, <laughs> you've worked it out. This is the worst time because I'm really flagging now. But <laughs> Okay, well, we'll keep it brief. You're tired. I'm sorry to have kept you for so long. That's all right. Well, there is a school of thought that says the art- key to happiness is low expectations, <laughs> which sounds a bit cynical, yeah. but uh, I think, well, obviously there's um, practical things, you know, having good relationships with your family and having a core of good friends who you can tell the truth to. I think that is one of the keys. Having people around who you can be yourself with and who will tell you the truth and who you can tell the truth to. Because there's so much BS in this world. We're just surrounded by it everywhere. That uh, I think it's much more stressful to not live authentically. All these things have become cliches now, but I think they're all perfectly true. Trying to be yourself, try and find a job which is some reflection of you as a person so you don't have to act all day. I think maybe that's the key, just trying to be as authentic as you can for as many hours of the day. I think another thing, going back to meditation again, is living, just being in the moment. Because I don't know about you, but I torture myself with lists. You know, obviously we've got a few tasks to do each week, but then I always seem to fill any potential free time with tasks that I have to do. And I think that creates a lot of stress. So I think trying to live as freely as possible, get what you need to do uh, done, but uh, try and live authentically. Obviously try and eat decent food and drink lots of fresh water if you can. Sort your physical out. With that, I'm going to turn it over to you because I'm hugging. (laughs) I would just add as well, having read some of the Darren Brown book, which is called Happy, where he explores this very question, also, it's about accepting that you're not going to be happy a lot of the time or, or that you're not going to be happy all the time. Mm. That's the thing. A lot of people, there is this sort of approach to this, which is like positive, first of all, positive thinking mm. that you just like imagine the thing you want, picture yourself on some big expensive boat with a rich lifestyle and it will materialize. Well, there's, mm. that's, there's no evidence to suggest that your brain will somehow magically create the events. And that in fact is dangerous because if you project this version of what you want and then you find it doesn't happen Mm. you're going to be really disappointed Mm. instead it's probably better to have the stoic approach which is to understand that to an extent there will be times when you're unhappy and times when you suffer Mm. there's no way of escaping that and if you get that into perspective 
then perhaps you'll be less easily shocked or surprised when things don't work out in the idealistic way that that you've been dreaming of, that it's more realistic to instead accept certain things, that things are not always going to go the way that we've been led to believe in all the films that we've watched. There won't necessarily be a happy ending. And so you've got to try and appreciate the things that you have and, yeah, live in the moment and enjoy, take time to stop and enjoy the things that you have in front of you. But yeah, be authentic, <laughs> be realistic as well. I did a show about how... Um being cynical or sceptical isn't always bad because you do need to be realistic about your life as well, which yeah. doesn't mean, you know, yeah. just being negative. It's not quite the same thing. And try and experience every moment of the day if you can. It sounds strange to say that, but I think a lot of us sleepwalk through the day. Try and just be alive to every moment, even if it's not a good moment. Be alive yeah. to it, you know, make the most of it because a, a day can be very long or a day can just whiz by if you're not paying attention to anything. So yeah, yeah. be mindful. Yeah. Like going back to David Blaine sitting in a plastic box, hanging above Tower Bridge. Yeah, he enjoyed the sun coming up yeah. and seeing the uh, smile on a, on a kid's face. Probably watched yeah. the sun properly as well. Instead of just going, oh, yeah, it's the sun, it's coming up. He probably watched it intensely. And we've all done yeah. that. We've been on holiday and stuff. You know, we're either, we could be lying on the beach or we could be in the mountains. And we suddenly start to observe nature and how miraculous it is, and actually look at it properly. You know, I have this great memory of, uh, I think I was in Laos, actually, and I was sitting in a deck chair, and uh, like I said, I do have problems relaxing, and never properly relaxed. And I just remember sitting in this deck chair for hours and hours and just gazing out at the sea and gazing out at the sun, like I said, the sun coming down. And it was just beautiful, and it's there, and it's all these things are more or less free as well, you know. Okay, yeah. you have to go on holiday, <laughs> you know what I mean? You can go to your local park or whatever. I like just watching people or enjoying themselves. It's very interesting how social conventions sometimes can make it hard for us to do those things mm -hmm. because we feel like we're going to be weird or something. Yeah. I was on holiday last week, as I said before, at the seaside, and I saw quite a lot of people fishing. And there was one guy, so we were having lunch uh, in this sort of restaurant in front of the, the sea, and there was a guy who'd set up his fishing rod and a chair, and he sat in the chair and he just sat there for ages. He sat there all throughout our, our lunch. We went for a walk. We came back. He was still sitting there. Mm. Now, obviously, he's fishing, but he didn't catch anything, right? There was no moment throughout any of it where it was like, whoa, a fish. You know, we had to try and get the, pull the fish in. Mm. So essentially, he's just sitting on the beach and just lo looking at the water, mm. looking at the ripples of the water. I understand it's wonderful. I have never done that i've never done fishing but apparently it's absolutely fantastic you know you really absorb you just take the time to really appreciate the surroundings like the movement of the water you sort of notice things that you don't normally notice and i just thought he could have just put a chair down and just sat at the he just sat there mm. but no he instead it's like the act of fishing which allows him mm. to sit and just appreciate this place mm. But if he just, if he was just a guy, like the, some people do it, they stand in the river, you know, with their thigh deep in the water mm. and stand there for ages. Mm. But if you're just a guy standing in a river without a fishing rod, just standing there appreciating nature, then people are going to think you're a crazy person, yeah. right? Like there he is standing in the river again. But if you're holding a fishing rod, that makes it okay, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, that's funny, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, society has gone that way, that... Everything is working against the idea of just relaxing and uh, just enjoying things like that. Yeah, it all just seems so strange, you know, because we're just conditioned to think the busy state is the yeah. normal one. Yeah. 
Okay. All right. All right. Well, Anthony, thanks a You're lot. Welcome. Obviously, we've just been through some really sort of diverse things, quite heavy things in quite a quick way. Uh, I think these are probably subjects that deserve to be dealt with in a, in, a, in a more considered way. And you have done that in your show. So listeners, mm. you can check out Anthony's podcast, Life and Life Only, if you want to hear his perhaps more measured or... Less ill insights. Yeah. Times when he was able to talk about these things in, in a planned way when he was in slightly better physical yes, condition. Yes. But thanks, Anthony. Thanks for, for giving us your time. You're very welcome. My yeah. other podcast, if you don't mind. Glass Go Onion ahead. on John Lennon. It's obviously about John Lennon. More than four years now. It's really good, listeners. It's really good. I love the way that you go into such detail about these aspects of John Lennon's life. I mean, as a a Beatles fan, I just love that. I love listening to Beatles podcasts. Mm. I just love listening to other people who are able to talk about this subject in a way that I can't. You know, I'm not able to be so coherent and clear about it. Mm. So it's it's a real pleasure for me to listen to you talking about John Lennon and exploring these aspects of his life in a very lucid way. Yeah. It's, it's a really good podcast. Thank you very much. And then his film Gold gets a bit neglected, but we uh, just put out Sorcerer, as I said, that went out on video. Yeah, When's this yeah. coming out, by the way? Do we know? When, when are people so, watching this? Anthony, I'm afraid this is going to come out potentially in August. Oh, I know, because uh, I've been talking about this on the podcast. I'm, I'm trapped in a time loop. Mm where I've done so many episodes because my wife's having a baby in, in, in a few weeks now, I decided I would produce as many, con- as many episodes as I could so that then I could just like take two months off maybe, or even a month off or something. Mm. And so I'd have enough episodes already recorded that I could publish. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this, this one is like all the way at the end of the queue. So it's probably going to come out in, in August. Oh, so my, my COVID will, be, will just be a memory. Yes, yes, exactly. So uh, hopefully all of the things we've said are still going to be relevant and that AI hasn't become sentient and taken over the world yeah. by that point. So hopefully people are still able to, to listen to this and it all makes sense. But thanks a lot. All right, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on.